Welcome, curious souls. You may not believe it, but Beauty once lived in this podcast. And Beauty lives here still. Show yourself. Lovely, isn't it? Come, I have more beauty to show you. I couldn't think of anything better to introduce this French Gothic story than a French Gothic attraction, one I want to ride very badly someday, uh, Phantom Manor at Disneyland Paris. We absolutely One of these days. One of these days. It almost Just feels like... Just any time in the next few weeks. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, you know what? I, well, actually, I don't... Well, I don't think we can because uh, Disneyland Paris is closed right now. I think all the Disneylands are closed right now. I think all the theme parks are closed right now. Yeah, everywhere. We're, we're completely dating this. Um, just like Quasimodo, who's trapped in his uh, in the the bell tower in the bell tower of Notre Dame. We are stuck in our houses due to the coronavirus. Hey, but that's okay because you got us to listen to and keep you company, right? Yep. Yep. I am. Uh, your host, Kayla King, and uh, I'm joined by my husband, David King, and this is Anna Musings. Yeah, and we are here to discuss 1996's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And uh, we have guests, which you probably heard already. Yeah, they've already chimed in a fair bit, so we're not... A, don't, it's, probably, it's just the gargoyles, though, right? <laughs> just the gargoyles. Yes, it's just the gargoyles. No, it's a uh, returning guest. It's me, Jason Isaacs! <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Jason Isaacs is in this. Jason Isaacs? So Jason Isaacs? Or did I get the name wrong again? Jason I have Alexander. no idea. Jason was, Alexander. I want to see that version of this where Jason Isaacs was <laughs> was Victor the Gargoyle. He could pull he could pull off a good um Frollo. Oh, he could, actually. Well, yeah, but I mean, we already got the best Frollo, so okay. I mean It's returning guest Alex and Heather. I, Hello. Hello. I didn't give their names because we gave them. You're saying so many fake names. Fake names for the well, win. Fake names. Real fake names. Real fake names. <laughs> no, honestly, uh, it's been. Well, well, gosh, was it Peter Pan or did we do one? No, we did a uh, Ducktales. Ducktales. Well, that was Animusings Plus, but you haven't been on the main Animusings since Peter Pan. Yeah. Yeah. So welcome We're back. back. We flew all the way to Paris from Duckburg, and boy, are our arms tired. <laughs> That's okay. You had ferried us to get you there. Indeed. Launchpad d- didn't do a very good job of getting us there, though. No, that's fair. Oh, God, we're going to crash! <laughs> oh, boy. Hey, I'm just going to drop you off here. Is that okay? <laughs> sure, um, sure. Don't worry about it. I was going to make a dark joke about Notre Dame, but <laughs> especially if what's happened in the past year. Wow! Yeah, is it it interesting to know that we're doing this within a year's time from when uh, the cathedral, the real-life cathedral, caught fire? Yeah. Luckily... Sadly. Sadly. Well, luckily, the vast majority of Notre Dame survived it. The Mm -hmm. cathedral... I mean, some parts of the cathedral were lost, but more more or less, the majority of it is still intact and will be rebuilt. So Mm -hmm. they were able to save most of the cathedral, so that's good. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a good part about it. Uh, but uh, we're going to talk about the 1831 version of Notre Dame. Ah, uh, wait. 1831 version? You mean the one by... Yes. So, uh, if you guys did not know, uh, this was actually based off a novel by Victor Hugo. And that's very important. Like, this is extremely important. Because... Um, 
Should I just delve into the history? Let's, let's, let's do it. We're already here. Let's talk about the history of this film and maybe about Victor Hugo. Okay. <laughs> so, um, Hunchback of Notre Dame is considered one of those classics. And, yeah. Uh, uh, actually, the idea got pitched in 1993 when development executive uh, David Staten, Staten? I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he read a classics illustrated comic uh, adaptation of the book. Oh. Uh, which I actually had to look up and I'm like, what's Classics Illustrated? And it was like a comic series that um, made uh, classic novels into comics. Oh. I thought that's so cool. I that mean, is cool. I might look more into that. They were doing that in the early 90s? Uh, no, I, earlier than that. Oh, really? Yeah, it looks like they, it looks like old comics. I gotta look more into that. Okay. But, um, I didn't... So, I had a great illustrated... I actually had a lot of the great illustrated classics line. Mm-hmm. Growing up, they weren't quite comics. Okay. But yeah. what, it, what it was was it was a junior novelization of, of great literature, but with every other page having a, a full-page illustration of what was happening. Oh, wait a minute. I think I do remember these now. They were, like, black and white, right? Like, they were full color. Are, are you sure? They're called... I saw it... When I saw it, it looked like a comic. It's called Classics Illustrated? Classics Illustrated? That's what it was called. Um, I, I I know what you're, but I know what you're talking about, Alex, because I had some of those. I had like the picture of Dorian Gray. I had, um, oh my gosh, I think I had Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. Here's what it would have looked like. Okay, that stuff, that's that is something different because that's a comic version. Yes. that's a comic book. But no, I know what Alex is talking about. It's 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 similar because yeah, every other page was an illustration. Oh yeah. It also doesn't help that the names are virtually identical, just reversed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The one, the one Kayla just showed me was the the Three Musketeers, actually. Yeah, the series. Oh, uh, cool. Began publication in 1941 and then went through 1969. Okay. So yeah, this it's an old comic. Gotcha. Series. Okay. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, going off on a tangent. Um, so remember Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale, the directors of Beauty and the Beast? Who? No, I'm just kidding. Yes, of course I do. <laughs> well, uh, you're probably wondering, where have they been? They kind of disappeared. Yeah, where are those guys? So uh, they decided to step away, take a break, and uh, actually did some storyboarding for The Lion King. Until Jaffrey Katzenberg uh, came up to them and said, Drop everything, you're doing Hunchback. <laughs> the shadow of Jeffrey looms yet, mm-hmm. but soon, soon he will be gone. From the studio, at least. Yeah. But actually knowing that uh, Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale directed this makes uh, so much more sense. Yeah. So the reason why I must say the novel is very important is because uh, the novel itself is not at all kid-friendly. Oh, yeah. No, not at all. Not even close. No. Um, I know people are like, well, why would Disney do such a thing? Um, I mean, Disney has adapted uh, source material that's been... I mean, the original source material has been darker than what got portrayed in the movie. Like, this is nothing new to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, they I mean, they did the Black Cauldron. And then Little Mermaid, like, the original story of the Little Mermaid, it's really dark. And yeah. To make something Disney-fied yeah, the, that. And the original Little Mermaid, I believe the Little Mermaid became sea foam at the end. Yes. Yep. Uh, there's actually more to it. Like, she actually had her tongue cut out. Every time she took a step, it felt like uh, uh, she was stepping on knives. Uh, yeah. And she never, she doesn't get the guy in the end. Uh, she. Hans, are you okay, buddy? Hans doesn't. No, he was not. No, he's done a lot of dark stories. Oh, like, yeah, this, I this know. 
when it, when it comes to the Doctor I know. Who hotels, that's his. Yeah. That's his jam. And it wouldn't be the first, and it, this wouldn't be, it won't be the last time that Disney takes a Hans Christian Andersen story and makes it way friendlier than the source material. But yeah, no, this is this is a similar case. One of the hard parts about doing Hunchback of Notre Dame is that, like, you can't get around the rape and lust, which don't translate well to children's stories. Well, another thing, too, is, uh, so Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame is the book that basically saved Notre Dame. The reason why (laughs) we know it as well as we do and, like, consider it a national monument or whatever is because of this book. They Mm. were actually, at that time, it was going into disrepair, and they are just like, it's just another cathedral. And Victor Hugo basically went into, basically wrote a love letter to Notre Dame in this book. Right. um, And along with that, yeah, uh, there is some dark, a lot more dark moments. I mean, the purpose of this novel is four men are lusting after one woman, and it leads to... Sadness and despair. Mm-hmm. So... And all framed around a cathedral. All themed around a cathedral, yes. Um, so uh, they actually had to bring in about, like, a, a bunch of different um, screenplay writers for this. Uh, but it was decided early on that Quasimodo must be the center of the story. Now, in the, in the novel, he wasn't. He was just one of the uh, four men. That Even was. though the novel is st- has the same name, it's the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yes, but it, it's he's not always the focus. Like it, you, they actually switch point of views. The main focus actually in the novel, I think, is just Esmeralda and the chaos that she causes by these men lusting after her. She doesn't cause it; the she, men do. Yes, basically. I mean, let's be real. She's just she's just trying to exist, man. Yep. And that's really all it is. She's just trying to exist, and they... And the male gaze is the problem. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, but having uh, Quasimodo as the central character is actually kind of what drives this film, and actually, I think, gives it that innocence. Or, not innocence, but, like... It gives it more of a... Gives it more of, like, a... That's where I think the whimsy comes in, because Quasimodo it, has, you know, the, doesn't have to deal with a lot of this, the stuff in the world... What it, it, the theme they chose is the same kind of theme that uh, they've done in a lot of other Disney movies. He's an outcast who wants to just belong. Or just, he wants to be part of their world. Uh, he wants to be... He I wants want adventure in the that great, great wide somewhere. Yeah. He wants to be a cat because um, everybody wants to be a cat. He wants to be part of your world. Yeah, basically yeah. all those themes drives that. Um, Ironically, none of us sing Quasimodo's song. <laughs> no, actually, so one of the things I'm going to do... i talk about the music later. We, we will talk about the music later. Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, but, because we need to talk about the music, but uh, I, th- I think this movie actually does need to go from beginning to end. Yeah. And the reason why is because I'm going to make some comparisons to the Victor Hugo novel. Okay. And I'm going to explain why they made the changes they did and beyond other beyond we could never use this do this in a kids movie yes or in a movie Mm -hmm. aimed for general audiences this this is a movie that needs to be talked about in detail oh of course so we're gonna be here for three and a half hours (laughs) that's Uh, good i'm popped up on coffee yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> Piggy will be happy. Now, all right. Uh, this was already going to be a tricky film. We all know this. Yeah. I mean, even uh, the funny part is, it was going to the um, uh, MPAA. If I remember. Yeah. That's the people. MPAA. Who, yes, they're the ones who uh, choose if they get a G rating or a PG rating. Believe it or not, none of the scenes were cut, and they were given a G rating. Really? Yes. Wow. That's shocking to me. Now that's because they kept it vague. Yes, and that's the that's the thing. It wasn't like, hey, this is here front and center. It's within the story. It's. I think that makes it more. I think that makes it better, even too, when you think about yeah, it. But well, I know what we're again when we get into detail. Them. Right, of course. But uh, it's still... Okay, I'm going to continue. So, um, the film was scheduled for a Christmas uh, release in 1995, but then um, something happens. Jeffrey Katzenberg leaves the company. <laughs> uh, yes! He is, you're, I know, you're... Get out of here, Jeffrey. Vamoose. And that actually delays the uh, film. So instead, the film uh, comes out June 21st, 1996. Okay. Uh, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, it's, it's goodbye. Goodbye, Sorry. Jeffrey, and do never darken our doorway again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my cat just... No, it's okay. Uh, okay, I'm get, I'm so looking forward to not having to talk about Jeffrey Katzenberg anymore. Um, I should let you know, the film also... Uh, this film had a budget of $70 million. Okay. Um, it actually did well, but not in the way you would expect. It didn't explode, right? I mean, okay, so domestically, it only made $100 million. I know that, okay. that doesn't sound like a lot, but like... Um, this is an expensive one, actually, come yeah, to think of it. Well, $70 yeah. Million is yeah. really starting to, yeah. Um, well, they 3D rendered... They digitally animated a lot of Notre Dame. Yes. Uh, that, it, it looks beautiful. Oh, yeah. They actually did have to uh, create a computer program in order to do that because they realized, oh, we're going to have a lot of uh, crowd scenes, mm -hmm. especially, and mm -hmm. that's going to be difficult. So, 3D yeah. rendering. Yeah, exactly. And also, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, they also spent a lot of time and effort to detail Notre Dame to be accurate to the actual cathedral. Yes. Mm. At least the exterior portions of it. Yes, mm -hmm. they did. Like, a lot of effort went into this film. And you can tell. Oh, yeah, you but, can definitely again, tell. Uh, now, funny enough, internationally, it made $225 million. Oh. It did well internationally. Yeah. Which, I had to look this up, like, why is this film, who who's, like, watching this film? Francis. Of course, it, of course, France is. France, France is doing it. France loved this film, and you want to know why? Because it was the perfect timing. In August of 1995, French police raided a Parisian church and found 200 illegal immigrants, took them, and uh, or they seized them. Sorry, and those illegal immigrants were just seeking refuge. Under France's strict expulsion laws. Oh. 
this was a thing that was that was prominent in the news. And not long after, Hunchback Notre Dame comes up, and it resonates with French citizens. Sanctuary! Yeah. Mm. Uh, Americans on the other hand. Oh, boy. Oh. Oh, boy. Uh. So, um, <laughs> there was a lot of criticism from audiences. Mm-hmm. They were trying to figure out if this film was too scary or too violent. They were uncomfortable that there was ish, like talk of sexual obsession and religion, and they parents were like, "This seems too adult. Why would we take our kids to this?" Why? Even Jason Alexander said that he would not take his four-year-old kid to this. Oh. But he also says. I'm not gonna lie, every time my kid hears a minor chord, he runs for the hills. <laughs> that, that, that's just... Well, yeah, this movie opens with a minor chord. Yeah, and then uh, also it angered fans of he- Victor Hugo's novel. I mean, to be fair, this movie came out when I was 10, and I saw it when I was 10, and I did not understand what was happening. I was very confused as to how Claude Frollo felt about Esmeralda. Like, I understood that he what he wanted to be with her, but I'm like, if he wants to be with her, why doesn't he just ask her out? Why is he being so <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. the lust thing and stuff like that was just soared right over my head. So, yeah. as a movie, for a 10-year-old, like, it didn't make sense, and I was just very confused as to why Claude Frollo was the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Also, I thought Claude Frollo was a priest when I watched it. I did, too. Uh, But, again, like, I have tidbits and all that that I want to add through this. So I'll give details to, oh, this is why they chose what they did. Yeah. And also, there is another group of people that were this. I was surprised by this. So there's a part in the movie that actually caused controversy, but also inspired a group of people. It's. I'll, once we get to that, I'll explain. Okay. But okay. I, I was kind of like, huh. Now I'm curious. Didn't expect that. But okay. okay. Anyway, um, uh, I, uh, I'll bring up the song once we. Do you want to? Should I'll bring up the music once we open up the film? But we should talk about our personal histories. Okay. Uh... Wait. One last thing. One last thing. <laughs> Hunchback and Notre Dame also did. Well, in another way. Merchandising. Merchandising, merchandising. They brought in $500 million. Oh, wow. Yeah. On all those, like, McDonald's toys and plushies and, like, <gasps> games. $500 million. That's a... Wow. So, I tell you. Hunchback the lunchbox. Hunchback the toilet paper. <laughs> Hunchback the flamethrower. Hellfire! <laughs> so, uh, you Thank know. you, Mel Brooks. That is one of the greatest scenes in film history. Uh, oh my gosh. Spaceballs is so underrated sometimes. I would do a Mel Brooks po- uh, podcast if I could. Okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really would. Like, this is, I grew up with his movies. Like, right. Like, here's the weird, weird part about my childhood. My favorite movies include Disney movies and Mel Brooks films. I watched Mel Brooks films at five years old. Why my parents allowed me, I have no idea, but... Happens. Explains me as a person. Uh, 
Well, again, there is this point where, like, can kids watch it? Yes. They will not be inspired to do anything bad by this film. No. Will kids understand it? No. <laughs> okay. I, Them, I, they I, might. Well, but... okay. We were, like, the right age when this came out. Do yeah. You, what were... Okay, that's actually... I'm trying to remember. I just... I remember... I mean, I was six. You were seven when yeah. this came out. I, I think... Um... And I, I do remember this movie. I actually do remember seeing it in theaters, and I can actually... Me too. ...give you some details, so... Okay. Um, the main thing I remember was just how, I mean, I definitely remember the, I remember more the scale and the scope of this movie being really impressive. Mm -hmm. I remember, uh, really digging the fact that Quasimodo as a character, when he showed up, was not your typical sort of, like, handsome Disney hero. They made him look, they made him look, like, lovable, but mm -hmm. they still kept him looking fairly, not grotesque, but they, they made him look like, you know, like, like he, he like, deformed. Was this a film you watched often? Not that often, actually. I think I maybe saw it a handful of times, and then, but it it stuck with me. I think the I think the spectacle of it and the the scope of it hit me more than anything else. And it was only later that it really dawned on me just how uh, deep some of the themes of it run. But I think they they while I while I skimmed over a lot of it, it, the the gravitas of the movie I think was not lost on me as a kid, and that's why I remember it even though I didn't watch it that much. Uh, I didn't own this one, I can tell you that much. Oh, I absolutely own this one. This film stuck with me as a kid. Actually, uh, I owned a lot of uh, toys from this movie too. Oh yeah. Uh, my sister uh, had the jolly, <clears throat> like a, a jolly uh, stuffed animal, and it would jingle, and Aww. she actually. That was one of her favorite toys. She brought that a lot, uh, a lot of places. But the one thing I did play, or that was a hunchback themed thing that I really loved was the video game. Oh. So there, or it was a computer game, and it was kind of silly, but it was like, oh, it's the Feast of Fools, and there's like five different games you had to play in order to win, and they're very like, they're carnival games basically. But the one that uh, I like. Even my dad would sit by me and try to figure out how to win this. It was called Jolly Bowling. So you had to figure out how to exactly um, knock over all the village people so you can dunk the monk. Oh, nice. You, get, you had to, like, click it correctly and make sure it it hit a certain way. And Oh, nice. Um, that was a fun game. <laughs> uh, but along with that, too, I think I actually... There is a picture of me dressed up as Esmeralda as a little kid when mm. I, uh, for Halloween. Mm. So I, and then other things that I'll get into later on as we go through the film. But, um, it, it wasn't until I got older, I really appreciated this. Film. Yeah. Um, especially, uh, so the one thing that did stick with me was about 10 years ago, uh, I uh, this was, I was 20 and I was working at Walt Disney World, and one of the things that uh, Disney cast members will do, uh, or at least at Disney World, is once a year they put on this huge performance where they uh, sing a variety of. It, it depends on the theming, but this year it was all Disney songs, and the one they chose really surprised me. Um, they chose a song called Esmeralda. It's not in the movie, but. It was from a German musical that was based off the movie. And, hmm. 
This German musical got translated into English so they could perform it, and I basically wept and, like, was just in awe and shock hearing this music. I'm like, I was like, okay, where did this come from? I, like, I know it's Hunchback and No Drum, and then that led me down to listening to the music, and that music made me weep. <laughs> and I realized, oh, wow, this is... So, I'm going to talk very fondly about the music, but uh, funny thing... So that um, song, by the way, it is on YouTube. Uh, like, the actual performance I saw is on YouTube. Wow. So now I can listen to it over and over and over. You showed it to me, too. Yes, I did. Ages ago. Uh, I, I could show it to you guys, too. But um, they actually brought the musical to America. They actually, uh, re like, in the past couple years, they brought it to America and uh, translated into English. And it's, like, David and I actually got to see a performance of it. And we were just in shock because they basically said, oh, how could we have made Hunchback of Notre Dame an actual, an adult story that still fits with the Disney feel? And it works. And another great part about that uh, musical, too, is Quasimodo was played by a deaf man, cause, which makes sense because in the novel, he was deaf because he worked in the bell tower. So, yeah. like... There were uh, gargoyles that would sign for him, and he would sign back, and they would talk, like, uh, communicate for him. And that's, oh, it's so good. We'll probably bring that musical up a fair bit as we talk that about this. awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah, I completely yeah. recommend it. I'll send you um, the performance that I saw when I, uh, from 10 years ago. I'll, uh, I can link it to you, but it, the, the song is called Esmeralda, and it takes place, like, when Phoebus has just uh, uh, left, or basically says, I'm not going to help you, and it would be the, um, right it, before the intermission. It's the uh, the finale of Act 1. It's the finale of Act 1, yeah, and cool. it nails it. It's so good. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you guys later, but, um, yeah, tell us about your connection with Hunchback and Dungeon Heather? Um, well, sort of got into it, like, you know, the movie came out when I was 10. I think I saw it once and, like, hadn't really understood it. I think because, like, the concept of lust was so foreign to me that I couldn't understand the villain's motivations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like, I was like, I just spent the whole movie being like, but he's in love with her, right? And I couldn't understand why you'd be really mean to someone you're in love with. <laughs> like, you, and I'm like, if if he hates her so much, why does he want to marry her? Because I thought he was proposing marriage as well. Mm. Like, that was also the logical thing for my ten year old mind. I mean, that's fair. Ga Gaston is a similar in terms of like his. He just wants. Well, he wants Belle more for reputation. Yeah, just conquest. He he got the the oddball girl, the one that n not interested in anyone in the village, to marry him. It's a status well, thing. Frollo is very different in that respect. Yeah, well, I understood Gaston because Gaston, you know, my little kid mind was like, well. He has a crush on her, and he wants to marry her, which, you know, logical things, and she's just not interested in him, which mm -hmm. was like, okay, I understand that. He right. wants to marry her. She doesn't want to marry him. Understandable for me. But this concept of, like, lust was really 
just lost on 10-year-old me. Right, of course. Yeah. Where where you could, like, want somebody, but also hate their entire personality. Mm Mm-hmm. Because from watching the movie as an adult, I'm like, oh, like, part of the attraction is not that just that she's a beautiful woman, but she's a beautiful woman who, like, openly defies him at every turn, and that's part of the appeal. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Where it's like, oh, here, here is a beautiful woman who's pretty much spitting in my face, and I yeah, we, we find will, that hot. We will get into that. Like, I, there's some, there's, there's layers. There's layers, so. So many layers. Um, what about you, Alex? So, I actually never saw this movie until I was in my mid-twenties. What? Yes, uh, because I went to Disney World about six months or so before Hunchback came out. So, it was awesome going to Disney World, but Hunchback actually was oversaturated at Disney at the time. Mm. And the thing is, I had read the great illustrated classic, not the classic illustrated, (laughs) whatever they called it. Yeah. And I was like eight when I read it, and I didn't really like the Victor Hugo version. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's a a dark and dour and kind of slow-moving story, and I was eight. Right. Understandable. I didn't appreciate it. Also in the book, like... Everyone dies, and it's sad. Yep. Yeah. You're yeah. like, because, like, I watched the movie first because I was 10, and I was like, oh, this is great. And then I got older, and I read the book, and I'm like, oh, man, this is sad. This is depressing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I obviously didn't read the Victor Hugo version because it is in French, <laughs> but I read a child version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame where they just... Like, use simple words. Yeah. And, you know, pictures and stuff like that. But but they kept the story the same. And I was like, what do you mean Esmeralda dies? Mm-hmm. What do you mean Quasimodo curls up on her grave and just lays there <laughs> until he also dies? Spoiler alert, that's not what happens in the movie, but... <laughs> what, do, what do you mean the soldier... That version didn't test well. Yeah. What do you mean the soldier turned out to be a jerk and just left her to die? I'm like, oh, this is depressing. <laughs> yeah, so for me, I got oversaturated seeing, especially, it was the gargoyles. The gargoyles were everywhere at Disney when yeah. I went. And they were also so heavily featured in the marketing yeah. And I was also at that stupid age where I was like, I'm too cool for Disney movies. <laughs> um, so I actually ended up missing it. Fair. And it wasn't until I was older, like I was like 24 or 25, it was shortly after Heather and I got our apartment together, that um, I had heard people talking about it for a while, and I was like, you know, I've never seen this. We should We should watch it. And I was actually blown away. I really loved the movie. When I finally saw it. And I think being able to see it as an adult, I really appreciated what was in it Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think I ever would have seeing it when I was younger. Okay. So as a kid, 
I was convinced that all three of the gargoyles were men. <laughs> I still thought that too. I there and even, that even watching it, I, I was like, oh yeah, that's a woman. And then it took till three quarters of the way through this movie, like three weeks ago, for me to be like, is that gargoyle a woman? <laughs> oh damn. Okay. I just I don't, for some reason I thought they were all men. Uh, I remember I remember reading somewhere as a kid about um, the fact that it was Victor Hugo and Laverne, and that Laverne. I don't know. I I didn't I didn't have the same confusion about it, but that was. I'll I can I'll bring this up now. Um, we'll t- I'll talk more about the gargoyles when we get into. The yeah. For this one, um, there's a lot of foreshadowing here, though, in what you're saying, Alex, about how I feel about the gargoyles, and I'm going to sum it up real briefly by saying. Gee, no wonder you didn't want to watch the movie. I totally relate. Because if the gargoyles were all that they were, that were everywhere, then yeah, I wouldn't want to watch it either. Um, so Laverne was voiced by Mary Wicks, uh, and uh, you might remember her, David, from yes. uh, a movie in 1961 called 101 Dalmatians. Oh, wait. She, she voiced uh, Freckles, uh, like one of the little kids in 101 Dalmatians, but... Her main contribution is that she was the model for Cruella DeVille. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, this actually will be her last movie. She actually passed away just before it was released. Oh. Yeah. Um, but uh, another thing that I know her from is uh, Sister Act and Sister Act 2 is Sister Mary Lazarus, which was like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Wait, that's who it is? Yes. Oh, my God. I know. I know. I was excited about that, too. I was like, oh, no way. So... Yeah, just a fun tidbit before uh, we delve into the film. And uh, I'm going to mention the music here. So, first off, it's Alan Macon and Steven Schwartz. And uh, now, they, they claim that the uh, they, they had their pick of whatever film they could choose. Like, they're like, hey, you've done, like, all these Disney movies and have won awards for them. Choose whatever one they want, and they immediately choose Hunchback of Notre Dame because of the underlying themes. Ah. Yeah. They love the idea of uh, uh, Quasi being a social outcast or Frollo being a hypocritical character that's also complex. Um, and then uh, Stephen Schwartz claims that this is Alan Menken's best score. Stephen Schwartz is not wrong, in my opinion. By the way, by the way... Uh, the score was uh, nominated for uh, an Academy Award, but it's also the same year that it was nominated Academy Award for Jane's and Giant Peach. So if you remember in the last Disney oh, Plus, yeah, it lost to Emma. You know, Emma was never my favorite Jane Austen novel. <laughs> Anywho, but <laughs> the score... Okay, like oh, the very boy. the way the movie opens, like any good Disney movie, is with... The uh, was with a a great opening, um, you know, moving, you know, panorama shot of the cathedral in the clouds and then the streets of Paris. But while we're zooming in on the cathedral, we get the motif we get through the whole movie. And it's the opening chorus of Hellfire or Mm. Bells of Notre Dame. It's Bells of Notre Dame. But it's the same. But Bells of Notre Dame and Hellfire have the same motif. That's true. Yes. When it's in a when some of the notes are in a minor key, it's Hellfire. When they're in a when they're in a more positive key, that's when it's Bells of Notre Dame. 
So it's, it's kind of helpful. Both are, both are exaltation songs admiring God and his great works, while Hellfire is looking at it as a as a call for help. The Bells of Notre Dame are sort of reveling in the glory. Right. And we get that. And my goodness, is that a great way to open the movie with just a ah, 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 ah. It's so beautiful. The animation is exquisite in this movie. It is incredible. Like, yeah. The details, the panning in, like, like the design, just, it's amazing. Multi-pin camera work in the extreme. Because I like, I, I feel like more, a lot of these movies are like, they have one really elaborate shot like that. Mm-hmm. And then we get one of those every Disney movie, I feel like. Like in Pocahontas, we had that when we're zooming toward the ship in the harbor in London. And then uh, now we have it zooming through the streets of Paris while animated characters are moving around on individual panes. And it's like, wow. Now, the one thing, though, with Pocahontas versus this one, Pocahontas, I feel like the characters were kind of more flat Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of design. Yeah. Where this felt more three-dimensional. Like, like, the characters actually feel like they match with the setting that they're in. Well, yeah, and then, like, the lighting and shadows are more prominent on them in this movie, too. Like, you can see that those parts are animated, mm-hmm. too. And, like, lighting and light and shadow play really heavily into this movie in oh, terms absolutely. of, like, mm-hmm. there's so much of that whole thing about the importance of illumination in various scenes and the color palette. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Pocahontas is all about wind and magical leaves. This is, like, this is lofty and grand grandiose no matter where you are mm-hmm. in the movie so fitting the cathedral perfectly so keeping that in mind we zoom in to paris and we meet clopin at the gypsy at like a punch and judy style gypsy cart and clopin is one of my favorite uh supporting characters in a disney movie if i recall when um there's a point that we were saying, like, oh, which Disney character would you be most like out of all the ones that we would review? And you and I talked it over, and we both agreed, you'd probably be the most like Clopin out of any Disney character. I'd want to be like Clopin. <laughs> that guy's awesome. He's a trickster deity. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he Now, I assume this, this, this story is taking place, this intro is taking place... You know, after the events of the movie, because he seems to know what's going on. And he's talking about the backstory. So we're we're to assume this is the day of he's using um, puppets and, like, entertaining the kids with this very dark story of how Frollo t- killed Quasimodo's mother on the steps of Notre Dame. What? <laughs> yep, yep. Um, for kids! For, for you kids. know, for kids! Um, that, the, uh, the bit where the... the they the intercut between him and the and by the way his um his singing voice is incredible. Oh, he has yes. one of the highest strongest tenor voices I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Uh yeah. The, okay, so there's a point in the song. And it's the last song part of the song where it's um now here's a riddle to guess what you can and then that whole part after that where he hits that high note and the bells are playing and the music. I will just listen to that um, out just randomly, just so I can feel goosebumps on my um, on my arms. Cause, oh my god, that that just gets me. I just like, <laughs> like I I think I almost cried when I was watching it with the animation too, and I'm just like, 
god, it's so good. Like, wow. Like, okay. This you, movie's kind of a work of art. It really is. Like, there, there is perfect moments in this. Yeah. Um. Okay, let's not skip over Frollo. No. Okay, so we have we have Frollo. Frollo gets introduced on a cold winter's uh, in a cold winter's flashback, uh, riding a black horse, looking scary, uh, harassing gypsies, and uh, voiced by Tony Jay. The great Tony Jay. The, that man has one of the best voices I've ever heard. Oh yeah. I've heard him in three places very specifically that I can think of off the top of my head. Obviously, one is um, Shere Khan. Monsieur Dar- Dark. No, he's uh, oh, he's done Shere Khan later on. Yeah. Okay. He was Monsieur Dark in um, Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. He obviously he's Frollo in this. Um, I watched a documentary about H. H. Holmes that he narrated. Ooh. Why haven't we watched? I'll find it. It was on Netflix. Oh my goodness! I need to watch this. Is later it, later in his life, Tony J. But it's doesn't amazing. Matter. It's I, amazing. And um, anybody who's a uh, who plays the legacy of Kane games, he voiced the Elder God. Oh, in the Kane series. Nice. I didn't know that. Really, really I've, awesome. I've role. heard him. I've actually heard him do a ghost host impression at one point because oh he was featured in the extras on a. On the weirdly enough, on the Haunted Mansion movie DVD, <laughs> he does a he does a bit part where he introduces you to a bit where you use your TV remote to go through the mansion and like look at the sets and stuff, interact with things, and he does he does his best Paul Freese impression. Serious? I'll uh, we can go after this, and I can grab the DVD and I'll show you. Oh my goodness! Okay, so by the way, Frollo, um, as Heather mentioned, um, and I thought so too. Uh, we thought he was a priest, um, and actually, in the novel, uh, he wasn't—he's an archdeacon in the novel. Right. Uh, in this mm-hmm. one, he was a—he's a judge. The reason they did that is because they wanted to avoid any controversy with the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Like they're like, we don't want the Catholic Church to get mad at us because we made this character the, the villain an archdeacon. So they just made him a really, really religious judge. Yes. And Victor Hugo's novels often had issues historically with the catholic church also right well he was criticizing the catholic church mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so i i understand disney's choice also they they split his character from the archdeacon or the archbishop excuse me and the judge to be to to be just the judge mm-hmm. for the movie so that way there was a priest of notre dame so they could have that argument all the argument fights about who could be allowed in the church and who wouldn't in the sanctuary arguments? What, what, what's the? Are you are you actually being pious or are you just being like you know, are you being cruel? You know oh, that kind oh, of yeah, thing. Yeah. Like that that moment. By the way, good horse. There's a great horse chase right here. Oh yeah. Where he chase, chases um, Esmeralda or not? Esmeralda. Not Esmeralda. It's no, a, it's, it's Quasimodo's quite... mother. Mm-hmm. Who, by the way, we know that Quasimodo is um is is has gypsy blood, or Romany blood. Yeah. Specifically. Because he, his mother was a gypsy, so um, they, uh, he goes like this is actually I, I I remember this scene really vividly because I'm like as a kid I'm like they act like she's dead all she did was fall and hit her head on a step it wasn't even that violent and then I think I look at it now I'm like no I mean they got away with it pretty well but that's like an instant death that's like mm-hmm. fall at a bad angle death just gone. Yeah, when I was younger, I didn't know she was dead. I thought they just kidnapped Quasimodo. 
Oh. And then we're going to throw him down a well. Yeah. I, you know, they were going to throw him down a well because he was ugly. And that's Which, what I thought was happening. Okay. Because they called him Frollo. 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 You're an intelligent man. Why would you throw what is, in, in, from your perspective, a soon-to-be corpse into your water supply? Let the peasants drink this. I don't know. (laughs) Frollo is not a good person by any stretch. Come on. Come on. Um, Like, uh, don't throw your corpse in a well. uh, He's stopped by, what's, what what would, not a priest. It's, uh, what is he? Pastor? No, it wouldn't be a pastor. Someone in the church, in the Catholic church. I'm not Catholic. He was the priest. He was the, he was a priest. Yeah. I'm, I'm not. Two up on Catholic Church hierarchy, but I think he was just the priest. Yeah, okay, so he's like the head priest of Notre Dame. He's voiced by David Ogden Steers. He <laughs> so, um, was at least a priest. Yes. We know that much. And so Cogsworth is playing a priest. Wiggins is playing a priest. Radcliffe is playing, playing a priest. priest. Um, <laughs> it was really weird when he emerged from the church and went, I like you. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Uh, but he convinces, um, Frollo to care for the child, but I, I like the fact Frollo's like, well, he's living with you. It's like, what? What do you mean? Let's not gloss over the fact that he has a great musical moment where he points out that, like, okay, you may not fail to have a guilty conscience, but know that the eyes of all the saints of Notre Dame are on you. And there's that great moment where it keeps cutting between Frollo and all the statues on Notre Dame seeming to glare down at him. I love that moment. Oh, it's oh, no, so it, good. It is the it was the moments like mm. it was the first indication that Frollo may have some doubts about whether he's right with God. Yeah, and I love that. I love. Here's the thing: this is that we begin to see the shadows of it of Frollo being probably one of Disney's more complex villains. Oh, absolutely. And that's you know that's that's saying something. It's not like he's complex to like extremes or anything, but in the context of a Disney movie, he's very complex. Yeah. Uh, but. This is what leads the child to... Basically, he's saying, I'll care for the child. child lives up in the church. But he has to stay... He has to live up in the cathedral. And apparently, uh, work the bell tower. Uh, and what a horrible name. Quasimodo. Half-formed. Half-formed. That's so cruel. It's... But, but again, it's Frollo. Yeah, I know. He's... I mean, Frollo said he'd raise him. He didn't say he'd raise him well. That's right. He, he sees... Now, as far as we know, and we, this is established early and gets expanded later, Frollo has a real problem with, with the gypsies. Because he sees yes. them as heathens, and he sees them as thieves, and he sees them, and so he's willing to In straight up murder mind, them. Their life, the way they live their lives is um, different or, or against what the uh, Catholic Church believes. Or he uh, that or you know he's using that as justification but he's also just racist yeah he's he did a they did a really good job of sort of epitomizing in frollo the racist rhetoric that the the actual romani people suffer from yeah Yeah. to this day oh yeah like now i i'm the only reason i'm using the term i mean i don't know how many people are sent because you know because here's the thing the romani people do some do own the, the the term gypsy which, by the way, is if you go back through history, it's an it's a slow degrade from someone who once assumed and said in a court to uh, a, a either a duke or a, like a monarch or something in France that they were Egyptian. 
Like he thought the person, people they saw were Egyptian. So they went from Egyptian to Egyptian, then from Egyptian to Gypsy as like a slang term, kind of like how Native Americans were called Indians for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, completely inaccurate and it was imposed by, you know, white Europeans. So. And the only reason we're using Gypsy is because the movie uses Gypsy. Yeah. And probably at that Yeah, but I mean, not to cut you off, Alex, I just remember that weird, that weird bit of like the name etymology that goes way back. And I'm like, I always wondered why, where that, the name, the, the term gypsy came from when it applied to the Romani people, but you know. But yeah, um, but yeah, what I was saying was they, they did a really good job with Frollo having him just be just this unrepentant monster. Yeah. Just like, like he compares, he compares the people in the square setting up for the uh, the Festival of Fools to an ant colony. Oh, yeah. And then proceeds to destroy the ant colony. Yep. Like, the visual metaphor of him basically saying he is 100% fine with genocide is unquestionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it makes you wonder what what happened in Frollo's past that turned him into such a... Uh, a callous person who still thinks he's justified in what he's doing because he's quote unquote right with God. The musical it, actually does a good job. Yeah, the musical does an amazing job exploring that. He sort of reminds me of the police officer. I was just going to say that. From Les Miserables, where like. Another Victor Hugo I was going to say another Victor Hugo character. <laughs> where like he had. Kind well because the police officer gets into his backstory in that one and tells you that he had a rough backstory. We're talking about Javert, Javert, right? Yeah, Javert. Javert, okay. Javert talks about his backstory. And he's like, "Yeah, my mom. I was born in a jail. My parents were scum, but I grew up to be the right of the law. So like, you know, and the law always has to be right because I have to be on the right side of things. And if I'm not right, I don't know what I am. Right." trying wrong so hard right not think his lines right now but like yeah. you know so frollo is the same thing where he's mm-hmm. like i'm right well there's this idea that like it's kind of it's a calvinist idea where if you are rich then god must have looked on you in favor and yeah. you are far poor you must have pissed off god somehow Mm-hmm. And if only you could get right with God, you won't be poor anymore. Mm-hmm. And the, That's the, sadly a rhetoric that's still true today. Yeah. Then we get introduced to uh, Quasimodo this, uh, after the introduction. After the music swells and Kayla tears up. Yeah. Um, Kayla cries. Uh, to be fair, I've I've been with you when we when we I bet was next to you and you held my hand and you were just squeezing it really hard during that part and you've done it before mm-hmm. and it's amazing. So, um, the interesting thing about Quasimodo is this was the toughest character that the Disney animator said we ever had to design. I'm sure. Because in the past, it's like, they try to make, let's be honest, pretty characters. Uh Uh-huh. And, um, uh, even interestingly enough, we'll we'll get introduced to uh, Phoebus later, but Jeffrey Katzenberg had a, a rule at, when they were at the studio that... The heroes or the male Disney heroes never have facial hair. Oh. And if you go back and look at like the Disney heroes, 
none of them have facial hair. That's and I hadn't thought about that. Phoebus. Way to go, Phoebus. Yeah, so in this case, they're like, how Quasimodo is very tricky because this the character from the book is deaf, gruesome looking, um, like the, just not a very attractive man, and he's supposed to not look attractive. So uh, James Baxter, actually one of the animators, said he had to be grotesque, downtrodden, and appealing all at the same time. Mm-hmm. They pulled an E.T. effect with him. Yes. They did. That's what I... Yeah. Like, they made him look... Like, somewhat off-putting without him being repulsive. They they managed to avoid the Uncanny Valley really well... Yes. ...with his character design, and I think a lot of it has to do with his eyes. Well, he looks like a pug. <laughs> oh. Gross, but cute. <laughs> yeah, but pugs... Are- yeah, pugs are the are like these ugly dogs that are so cute. Though. You know, he's got you know an interesting thing too. He's got that one his his right eye is really big and wide, and his other eye has that really sloped, drooping eyebrow that like almost practically goes over it. Mm-hmm. And, well, I mean, eyes and a squish nose. <laughs> He's got the he's got the the set of like close together teeth with the like the like the protruding teeth with the gums. Yeah. They, I mean, I look, you look at him, and he's like, he's both bizarre and adorable. Um, I think but he also smiles a lot. Yeah. yeah. smiling is charming. It is true. They, they always have him smiling whenever they can. Yeah, he's, um, his face, like, he, I think they, they, they he, there's, you can see the innocence mm-hmm. in him. You know? And uh, they cast also um, a great actor to cast uh, Tom Hulse, who, uh, was uh, Amadeus in Amadeus. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say Mozart. Yep. He yep. Was, he was Mozart in the movie Amadeus, which... Yeah, that he was... Ca- like, I gotta admit, Quasimodo's cast very well, because Tom Hulse sounds young, and Quasimodo's supposed to be, like, 20 years old. Yeah, that's right. He And he has a, a higher-pitched voice, so it sounds... Very pleasant, and that, and I think that adds to his charm too. You, for Quasimodo, I think picking a pleasant-sounding voice um, helps make the character more appealing as well. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Well, the other thing too is I think they do a good job making him look um, the way he moves. He lopes like a like a like an ape, mm-hmm. and because of that, it makes sense when he's basically uh, just like Simeon, like moving his way around the cathedral. You know, hopping around the bells. He's he's agile and strong, and that's the other thing. But he moves with like he moves like you'd see a primate move. Uh, One of the things I really like about Quasimodo's character, as well, is they set up several times in the film. One, his ease of navigating Notre Dame, both internally and externally. Uh huh. Fact that he is remarkably strong, mm-hmm. uh, because in order to get those bells moving and. In all likelihood, he's probably moved the bells at some point. Oh, yeah. He would have to be very, very strong. So they set that up really well throughout the film, and they keep calling back to it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, all his strengths and abilities make perfect sense for who he is as a character. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're also introduced to the gargoyle. <laughs> okay, now, okay, I'm gonna... Mm, I... 
I think we can all agree this is the they're the worst part of the movie. Mm. I, I will I will agree with you. However, I do like the idea behind them. It, it, I understand why they put them in the movie. Yes, I actually um, the guard. It's not a Katzenberg thing. I actually. Oh, I, thank goodness. <laughs> so I was about to be like Katzenberg. No. So actually, it was Truesdale and Wise who decided to add the gargoyles. Uh, in the novel, it actually reads: the other statues, the ones of monsters and demons, felt no hatred for Quasimodo. The saints were his friends and blessed him. The monsters were his friends and protected them. Thus, he would pour out his heart at length to them. Ah. And that was the line they realized, why not? He needs someone to talk to. Why not have it be the gargoyles? Um, it's very confusing. Well, I, I think it's actually kind of brilliant, too, because, again, Quasimodo, by himself for most of the time, doesn't have much to talk to other than Frollo. So he's going to probably imagine these gargoyles coming to life and talking to him, or, like, have someone to talk to. And Except one of the gargoyles throws a brick and it hits somebody. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. They're real. The, the, the okay, that, Yeah, it really is. They, they, they really messed up with them. Um, also a fun fact. Um, so, uh, the characters, uh, the three um, gargoyles are named Victor, Hugo, and Laverne. Those were not originally going to be their names. <laughs> They're originally going to be Cheney, Lockton, and Quinn. Why? <laughs> because all three of those uh, names are from uh, actors who uh, had a connection with uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, okay. So their oh, names. Yeah, Long Cheney, Anthony Quinn. Um, now. The reason why they didn't use the names is they were worried that um, the heirs of Cheney and Lofton would be mad by this and could easily sue them. And apparently, Anthony Quinn, who is still alive, had a reputation for suing people like that. So they said, let's not do that. So they went the Victor Hugo Laverne route. Mm -hmm. Um, Victor Hugo fit. I don't uh, know where they got Laverne from. That's I neither do I. But although, in my opinion, if I have to rate the gargoyles, Laverne is the least terrible of all the gargoyles. But yeah, Laverne was my favorite gargoyle. Mine's yeah, but I, I'm going to say something right now. But but that's like choosing your favorite in a lineup of angry geese. So <laughs> I do have a favorite angry goose. Hold on, hold on. It's the one from Untitled Goose Game, right? Untitled Goose Game. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. So, um, knowing this, uh. We have a good friend, and also someone who's been on the show before, Alan Cheney, who happens to be a descendant of Long Cheney. I asked... <laughs> I decided to ask him, I told him all about this, and I said, what do you think of this? Uh, now, David, you can uh, use a, a Donald Duck swear for this part. Okay. Because um, I'm going to quote him word for word. I'd have sued the f*** <laughs> out of them. Just kidding, that would have been cool. <laughs> <laughs> Granted, Alan's Alan's not much older than us, so yeah. I mean, he would have been. He I don't know if he would have He probably. I don't know if he would have been had power of attorney to be even exact <laughs> exact any sort of legal action against the estate of Disney. Yeah. Um. Uh. His his uh, uh, family members could have. But they could have, but anyway. Um. <laughs> uh. 
In the in the I, I will mention one thing I do like is in the in the musical that Kayla and I saw, he still talked to the gargoyles there and saints, but they were they were multiple the they were multiple characters. They were multiple statues, and they were mostly just a chorus. Yes. They all spoke together. And because the actor playing Quasimodo was deaf, when it got to the songs that Quasimodo would sing, one of the gargoyles sang for him. Oh, that's cool. It was really cool. And and while he while the gargoyle would sing, um, the actor playing Quasimodo would sign the lyrics. It was really hmm. neat. That's amazing. Yeah. I love it. I, I was I was very happy with that. Um, but they, but they, there's, the, he's, there's just a whole contingent of gargoyles. And whenever they communicate with Quasimodo as they're talking, as they're singing to the audience, they're also signing everything they say at Quasimodo. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and I could gush about that musical for ages because it takes everything I think the movie did well and t- undoes the parts that weren't done super well. Like the gargoyles. Like the gargoyles. So, so anyway. The thing about- the thing about the gargoyles that really bugged me, and this is this is from whenever ever since I was a little kid and saw the marketing for the film, they felt like unnecessary comic relief. Yes. And they felt very pandering. Especially yeah. as much as I love Jason Alexander, I think he's a brilliant comedian. I think his was the most egregious. Oh, absolutely. I And I feel like like the fart jokes and and stuff like that, they just they don't fit the tone of the film. And I understand they wanted to try to keep it appealing to as broad a base as possible. But every time it cuts back to them, with the exception of the scenes when they're being somber, they just, they don't fit. There's a, and they also give Quasimodo bad advice, and we'll talk about that later. Yeah, there's, there's a joke also, I'm going to address this right now, that bugs me, and I don't understand it. So there's a whole joke where Jason Alexander's character, Hugo is in love with Jolly. Jolly the goat, which I don't <laughs> understand. Why is this a thing? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It, 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 like, it's, they're like, get it? No, I don't. Why is he in love with them? I, or, I don't get it. And isn't Jolly supposed to be a boy? What? Yeah, we'll get into Actually, so, uh... Well, you know, actually, let's talk about when Frollo comes in and his okay. interaction with Quasi. Can I mention this is a this is a G-rated film where Damnation and Eternal Damnation are both brought up. Several <laughs> <Seven laughs> times. Yeah, and I hadn't thought I, I hadn't I didn't remember that, but he's going through the alphabet with um with Frollo, and he goes, you know, you know, D Damnation, E Eternal, Eternal Damnation, Damnation. and I like. like they said damnation in a Disney movie. Sweet. I, I find it funny that every word that he's uh, using with the alphabet is just horrible parts of, like, the Bible. Abomination. Yeah. Blasphemy. Yep. Jeez. Um, uh, while this is going on, by the way, uh, so I, well, the one thing Quasi wants to do is go to the Festival of Fools because it looks like a fun time. and everyone's there and having a good time. And he's watched the festival every year, but this year he's like, I don't know. I'm just, I can't go really be among them. So mm-hmm. uh, he came here to have a good time and it's feeling really attacked right now. <laughs> <laughs> and Frollo for, would forbid him from going. And even actually there's a point where during the alphabet, he accidentally says festival. Uh, that, that gets Frollo's goat. Frollo gets it immediately and is like, no, you don't understand. I don't want to go. 
and you shouldn't be among them. They would, they would despise you and all that. And, and also, these are horrible, sinful people, and they will, they will treat you. Remember, you're ugly and you're detestable, and only I care about you. So he's a whole already, song about it. Yeah, yeah he he's so that. manipulative. Um, to Quasimodo. He gaslights, he gaslights Quasimodo like the entire film. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. But he's been, but he's all Quasimodo has known, and he outright lies to Quasimodo when he said that your mother, you know, abandoned you. Yes. Yep. Yeah, doesn't bother to mention the fact that. Well, of course, he's not going to mention that he murdered Quasimodo's mother. Mm-hmm. Well, so. the, the priest kind of shamed him for doing so. So I well, I've already, maybe maybe he re, maybe he thought he'd been like, well, I guess if I take care of this baby, that's my my penance for having done this thing that I don't really feel all that guilty about. But apparently, all the statues glaring at me want me to feel guilty about it. Well, and if and if he's following Catholic doctrine, if he is, if he is, if he had confessed it, the sin would have been wiped away as long as he does the penance. Oh, he probably. Absolutely. This is his penance, is raising... And he probably follows that rule to a T and really thinks like, oh, that's fine, no. Yeah, exactly. But, by the way, so I I was raised Protestant, so... Um, I was raised Catholic, so I understand they, that. There's points I was, was like, like... I was like, hey, David, what is this? <laughs> there's been well, I mean, you know it's Catholic oh. because they, they pray to the, you know, the, 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 the Virgin Mary is a prominent figure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, there is, there is a Shakespeare quote. I don't know the exact quote. But it's from Hamlet. And it's the scene in Hamlet where Hamlet is spying on his uncle, who he knows murdered his father. And he sees him praying. And he's like, well, I can't kill him now because he'll go directly to heaven because he just asked for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And like Hamlet leaves and his um, uncle has this line, which is essentially like, yeah, I asked for forgiveness, but my heart wasn't in it, and other and it's just words. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. And words without heart do not to heaven go. That's right. So we, it, it, that, that's sort of the concept that I'm working with for Frollo, where he's like, well, he did the penance, and he did what the priest told him to do, so he feels he's forgiven, but his heart really wasn't in it. Yeah. Well, again, this guy's a villain. He's he's ultimately self-serving, and he believes he believes his religion. I mean, we've made this this is apparent when we get to Hellfire, but his religion is what he uses to make himself feel elevated, to make him feel better than others mm-hmm. around him. Oh yeah, it's what separates him, a man of virtue and strength and and moral fiber, from the heathen the heathen gypsies and the poor people of Paris. Mm-hmm. Because clearly God favors him because he works so hard to be in God's good graces. Anyway, this is a Disney movie that explores religion in some very oh. fascinating ways, and I'm all here. I'm all here for it. Uh, but then we get to out there. Out there. And uh, this is where I need to be. I need to stop and go back in time. If I could turn back time. So this song. This is the song that actually inspired something and also angered people. Really? The Southern Baptists were extremely angered by the song. They claimed that the song Out There is secretly a call to come out of the closet. Oh. And even said the words, 
Disney is more interested in promoting homosexuality than family values, but they're not wrong, because... Oh, boy. Wait till they hear about Frozen. (laughs) No, they're not wrong, because apparently the gay community actually ran with this. (laughs) And... Of course they did. uh, Hundreds of them bought out their t-shirts at an unofficial gay day at Disney World. And there was actually a a group um, called Out There. I love that. So That's pretty awesome, I gotta say. Which, by the way... It baffles me because, like, I'm listening to the song and I'm thinking, oh, no, this is just a typical, like, um, song of feeling like you're an outcast. And I, I can understand how that relates to um, the LGBT community. The Disney I Want song. It's the Disney I Want song. But, like, with Beauty and the Beast, and I discussed this, this, like, you had Howard Ashman, who clearly wrote songs using, he even claimed, like, oh no, there's definitely gay overtones in this. Like, I I am writing this from the point of view as a gay man who was dying of AIDS at the time. Like, and he was surprised that his songs actually went over the audience's heads. But then this one, out there, which had none whatsoever, was the song that people were like, this is a song about gay people. I, I, wow, okay. It's it's kind of interesting, like, just the comparison. But, I, I mean, I can see it. I do, I mean, Out There is about him feeling uh, trapped and not able to be himself. And um, uh, What he wouldn't give to just be, like, in the world as a normal person. Yes. Not feel like he's cloistered. And there's some great bits where he's just loping around the cathedral you see Belle in one shot. You pointed that yes, out to me. I had never seen that before, but you see Belle in a crowd shot. Yes. Really? Uh-huh. If, uh, when he says, out there among the rivers and the rivers and their wives, and they pan out, you actually can see Belle walking. Which I find, Oh, that's cool. That was cute. Which I find kind of cute. The moment that really sticks to me, of course, is when he's sl- uh, sliding down the, yes. the rain gutter. Oh. And, like, spl- throws water into the sun. And that, that's when it really struck me. I'm like... Gosh, this movie, there's so much about light and and shadow and angles in this because it's like, it's so beautiful and airy in this moment. And wow. And that's also foreshadowing for later in the film, the fact that he can maneuver around Notre Dame effortlessly. Right. You know what struck me too, interesting enough, the way he kind of ends the song is like he climbs that one spire and, you know, hangs off of it like, with his other arm out, almost like he's, you know, pulling a singing in the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, it hit me in that moment that that's one of the pieces that didn't survive the fire. That spire. That spire's gone. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, so I was looking at it going, yeah, that, that spire's no more. It fell over. It burned out completely, because it was mostly made of wood. That's right. Yeah. Uh. So, just, you know, it, it hit me in the feels a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was already crying yet again because it's panning out and da da da, da 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 And he's doing that final note, and I'm just like, why is the music so beautiful? This, this might have the best, the best music. I, I yeah, it has. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh well, except for okay, we'll get into that. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, we get we get the introduction of both Esmeralda and Phoebus. 
that's where I come mm-hmm. from. Uh, so, um, Esmeralda... I love this movie. Uh, so, Esmeralda is an interesting character. Uh, yes. So, she is voiced by Demi Moore. And it's kind of funny because uh, an, a, an, a lot of audience members were kind of against how sexy she looked. And yeah, Not me. Well, that's sort of the... Not you? You did not find this character sexy. No, I were, you said they were against how sexy, sexy oh, she oh, looked. Oh, okay. I heard you, no. Well, another thing, too, they were also kind of um, offended that they got Demi Moore to be in the movie because she had just done the movie Striptease. Oh. So, um... Uh, and uh, baby Kayla, a young Kayla, found her attractive. <laughs> uh, later on realized, oh, that wasn't a... Uh, that wasn't just, oh, I admire how pretty she is. That was young Kayla having a crush on a cartoon character. So. <laughs> oh, poor young bi baby Kayla. <laughs> it, took, it took you a little while. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she's out. She, her and Jolly are there as uh, Phoebus is coming in. And I, I like this first little encounter. By the way. Pseudo encounter that they have. Phoebus is voiced by Kevin Klein. He is perfectly casted. <laughs> like he really makes the character, doesn't oh, he? Oh yeah, like oh he's so good. Mm-hmm. Like Kevin... what's really funny is I really like Kevin Klein. I think he's a hilarious actor. I particularly love his performance in in the show Bob's Burgers as Mr. Fishoder. <laughs> and what's so funny is I was listen- I was watching the movie and I was trying to see if I could hear any of Fishoder in Phoebus. And he's a really skilled voice actor, and he can change the characters around. Except there's like one part in like one of the one of the random little scenes where he just kind of does like a okay then, and just <laughs> and that was when I could hear it. Okay, yeah. And silly, silly me got really excited about that. <laughs> That's fair. Honestly, uh, he he's he's good. He's good at this, and I and he makes. Uh, a character that otherwise might not have been that interesting into an interesting character. I mean, let's be real. Phoebus is kind of... With pleasure. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Also, uh, this is actually some funny bits, like uh, Achilles sit, or or, Achilles heel. Achilles Achilles heel. heel. Whoa! (laughs) That one mustache... That one mustache guard... That one mustache soldier, he gets into, he pops up so often, and every time he gets into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And loses his mustache. And somehow yes. gets it back in a scene, a scene or two later. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think isn't Phoebus like coming back from? He's he's back from the wars. Yes. He's looking for the Hall of Justice. Frollo has specifically called him there. Um. And he just has a run-in with Esmeralda, who uh, basically guards a racist against her. Yeah, he does that whole bit where he he surreptitiously protects her. She notices it too, mm-hmm. and he even he gives her he gives her some money, maybe without realizing that it's her, mm-hmm. or maybe he does. I don't know. He just throws some money. There's like I like the disguise that she frequently uses, where she wraps like a shawl around herself, but Jolly is sitting on her head and has the goat beard and a pipe in its mouth. Yes, like, that was so cute. That's and I'm pretty sure he knows it's her. And you know how there are annoying animal sidekicks in movies, like we were talking about in Pocahontas, how. Uh, Miko, Miko, Flit, and Percy are all just kind of there, and they don't contribute much. Jolly, on the other hand, is 
as a is a throwaway it seems like a throwaway character but actually like is kind of funny and interesting and there here's the interesting part jolly participates yeah jolly is a in in all fairness is kind of a pointless character there's no reason for her to have a sidekick like she's kind of i mean she's a major character but still a side character and um jolly is not necessary the gargoyles i see as necessary because again quasimodo is up in the bell tower and has no one to talk to, so having these people to talk to would be great. Yeah. But Jolly actually has funny moments and actually is not an annoying character and actually makes funny faces. Like, they're... He actually does fun stuff where the gargoyles are annoying. And wouldn't have been great if, like, the gargoyles were actually entertaining and had some slight funny marks. Parts and that would have been nice. Instead, all the funny bits are belong to Jolly mm-hmm. when it comes to side sidekicks. Side but I guess Achilles kind of has a couple too. But that's just because he he's just a horse. Yeah, uh, I feel that's more just because of Phoebus. But mm-hmm. um, actually, with uh, Jolly, like one of my favorite moments uh, is there's a point where uh, like Esmeralda and Quasimodo have just escaped like peril and danger, and then Quas- he says, "I hope you weren't afraid." And Esmeralda says, "Not even one bit." For which Jolly responds. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's such a great response. It really is. Um, uh, and then I think bef- there's there's a bit before we get to the Feast of Fools where we see Frollo and Phoebus meet in the dungeon of the Fortress of Justice. The Palace of Justice. Okay, I'm assuming this is, podcast is going to be kind of explicit, or you're going to make mark it explicit because of the themes we're talking about. Maybe. This is a, this is a PG-13 episode. Yeah. So, <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Pearl has a sex dungeon. <laughs> Did Come on, you can't you can't deny that there's some he enjoys watching. Well, at the very least, he enjoys watching people get tortured. Oh yeah, yeah. And what's so weird is they play it off as a joke. Mm-hmm. It's a very dark joke, but a joke it's nonetheless. It's a very dark joke. Like I'm not gonna lie, it's a funny scene, but it's like. It's weird and very off-putting, and I I feel that it was purposeful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That they weren't just like, oh, we're going to make a joke about him torturing people. Like, I really think that they they made it funny so that way we as the audience were sort of, in a weird way, slightly okay with it because it was played off for humor. Hmm. But we also I, imply, it also for, further sets up how Frollo is a bad guy. Very, very bad man. Bad guy. But it's important to also establishing Phoebus and and his his basically following orders. He's a dude that follows orders. Like you brought me here basically to round up uh, f- fortune tellers and palm readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At, at first he questions it like, really, this is what we're gonna do? But then realizes the judge makes it clear, like, no, this is there, this gun of the earth, and he's like, uh, well, I have to follow orders. So. Yeah, because they have that bit later, that's the part with the, the ant, the ants, where he explains, like, I'm gonna, you know... Yeah, destroy them Destroy all. them. And he puts that, that one flagstone back upside down, and it's, and I remember you were just to be like, I'm like, oh, he put it on upside down, and you're like, that's, that bugs me. I'm like, yeah, I know, it's not symmetrical anymore. Yeah, that bugged me. <laughs> You can also hear a real sickening crunch when he puts it down. Oh, it's good. Oh, yeah, but then they go to the fest. but then the festival happens. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Quasi has uh, snuck off with a blue, bleached black cape to hide, uh, hide his face. 
and the festival's cute. Um, yeah, this is a good. This is a good song. It's another good song. It's another good moment. Topsy Turvy is a fun song. Topsy Turvy is fun, uh, and plus, it's another thing that stars Clopin. That makes me happy. Yeah, I think and as a festival, it's it's silly. It's that's uh, the whole point. So yeah. I mean, I, I like the spectacle of it. It's a very like it. It feels like this is the kind of thing that's necessary in a Disney movie, just to have a big flashy moment that's kind of more upbeat and silly. Mm-hmm. And this is that. So this is the big, this is the, this is the wacky song. Well, the wacky song that actually works. Yeah. Yeah. My question is, who hired uh, the Romani people to perform? Or is this Festival of Fools put, uh, like, put on by the Romani people? I don't know what the, it's a tradition thing, I guess. So people are going to come out and do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And because of that, Frollo's just like, well, I guess I better watch this happen. Or else, just to make sure, because they're going to do it whether I, you know, want them to or not. Mm-hmm. He wants to get it shut down, but he knows that the peasant. There's, it's a numbers game at this point. Oh yeah. And yeah, and the and the Romani are are happy to put it on. Apparently. Oh yeah, they're having a blast. Are you kidding? Yeah. Lafon is just enjoying life. And it's a, it's it's. I mean, come on, it's a it's a it's a festival of uh, it's a festival celebrating absurdity and to a degree rebellion because it's mocking all these uh, it's mocking all these authority figures. Mm-hmm. I'm also not entirely sure when the film takes place, but it might be before Ash Wednesday. So it might be a sort of like carnival style of festival. I... They said it's on January 6th? Or was it February 6th? Oh, I... The lyrics actually say on the 6th of January. I think it was on the 6th of January. I gotta look at the lyrics. <clears throat> um, to, to fill in the gap for this little bit, I will mention that... Um, I and I enjoy the fact that um, th- there's I mean there's 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 some slapstick bits in here but they're not out of place. Sixth of January. It is the sixth of January. Okay, I had that. Um. Uh, so yeah, Quasimodo uh, meets Esmeralda by accidentally falling into her tent. That was interesting. Mm-hmm. And oh, so. It is, the Feast of Fools is a religious holiday. Oh, really? It is a feast day celebrated by the clergy in Europe, starting in northern France, according to Wikipedia. Uh, But later it would become wider, where participants would elect a false bishop, false archbishop, or false pope. Silly rituals would be parodied, or ecclesiastical rituals would be parodied, and higher and lower clergy would change places. Oh, Oh, so it's like a play on that, huh? So, of course, Frollo would hate it. It's basically making... Don't subvert order. I worked hard to get to this order position, and this is all about throwing that aside. Mm -hmm. I hate it. Thanks, I hate it, said (laughs) Frollo, in a more Tony J voice that I can't do. Ah, but the one thing... Thanks, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice try. Apparently, the tradition here is that um, they king the ugliest face in Paris, Ugly face contest. Yes, and they think Quasimodo's face is a mask, which I'm like, yeah, sure. I don't believe it, but... <laughs> Esmeralda's the first one to say it. Yeah, she's like, great mask. I'm like, really? You think it's a mask? Really? I, I let it slide. It's not that, I don't know. It's a cartoon. It's a cartoon. Well, I actually know. Well, it's, it's like that episode of... Um, uh, 
Batman the Animated Series where um, Robin dresses up as Bruce Wayne. And you're like, you really had a Bruce Wayne mask hanging around and it really looks that believable? Yeah. What? Yeah. Cartoons, cartoons can just do that. Apparently. So, um, so yeah. Um, now, now, granted, Quasimodo, he gets un, un, unmasked, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. in front of everybody, and then they celebrate the fact that he's now, you know, he's having a great time, but... Did, he didn't. He kind of did. Did, did he got he got caught up in the revelry, because it doesn't seem like a very smart move for him to do. That's what I'm thinking. Because he because I mean Frollo's right there. Also, Ezra. Lef- yeah, Frollo's watching this whole thing. Oh, but not to skip not to skip the a very important scene, which is when Clopin seemingly turns into Esmeralda, and then Esmeralda dances all over the place, and that's what part of what sets Frollo off for the yeah, first time. Dan- this is an important moment. Not only dances, and I can, this is why a lot of people were like, why would you put this in a Disney film? She grabs a one of the uh, guard's uh, spears and dances around it like a bull. Yeah. She, like, she basically, like, comes up on Frollo and dances and, like, wraps a scarf around his neck. She kisses yeah. his nose at one point. Like... He is he is loving it. He's loving it. Uh, well, he's he's trying to he's look repulsed. He's trying to look repulsed by it. Like he's like, uh, uh, but like he's starting to feel like I'm feeling sensations I've never felt before. Look at that disgusting display. Yes, sir. <laughs> such a sorry. That's such a bad. Oh no! What is this feeling? <laughs> anyway, um, no. I mean, it's just important that we acknowledge that, and then also, yeah. Esmeralda is, uh, dang, man. Yeah. Dang, man. Yeah, I know. Dang, man. This is a good scene. But I think that's probably another reason why, not just caught up in the revelry, but she actually pulls him up on stage. Oh, yeah. He's like, he's charmed by her. He finds her attractive. Like, and also she was kind to him when he fell into her, uh... Her tent while she was changing? Yeah. Yeah. Um... But yeah, then he gets crowned king. Uh, yeah, and the the people are like, yeah, woo! And then as soon as the guards start throwing tomatoes, they're suddenly like, yeah, boo, hits. I'm like, this crowd turns on a dime. Yeah, this is the most easily led crowd ever. The only explanation I can think of is the one that they won't explore in the movies. Like, oh, they're drunk. They're just going to roll with yeah, whatever's happening. Yeah, yeah, actually. Well, part of, me, part of me wonders if this is just part of the festival. Because like you're supposed to throw fe- tomatoes at the king? I don't think so, because... Yeah, I'm not... Sure. Because they tied him to a wheel, and, like, the only reason I don't think it's part of the festival is because Esmeralda stopped it. Yes. And if it was supposed to be part of the festival, she would have been like, let's keep it going. Also, Quasimodo seems surprised, and he's watched the festival every year. Right. The, The guards started it, and then the rest of the people joined in because they're easily influenced, I guess. Oh, hey, this is part of the show. Mob mentality. Yeah, basically. Because uh, the guards even said, hey, you think that's ugly? Watch this. And then decides to throw it. Like, everyone was just... Yeah, like, and then if, at one point they're like, aw, hey. And then more tomatoes said, like, oh, is this what we're supposed to do? Ah, ha, ha. Torment the hunchback. Yeah. That kind of thing. Because it was the guards. Actually, a lot of the guards were the only ones that were doing it. And then the people started doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, which is tragic because you got... Was like, should I stop this? And Frollo's like, no, a lesson needs to be learned. And it's like, what a jerk. You know, one of the things I, I I really dig is like, there's moments when 
Frollo never chides Quasimodo. He never says anything. He just glares at him and then walks away. Yes. And that, like, speaks volumes about how much, like, control he has. He doesn't oh, have to yeah. say anything. He just go. He just gives him this look of utter disdain and disgust, and then he's gone. Mm-hmm. Like, you well, were so quasi- beneath me. Was Quasimodo's fear of rejection. Right? Yeah. The only one he talks to is Frollo. And if he feels, and Frollo has used the threat of rejection, like, do what I say or I go. Mm-hmm. And, for, and Quasimodo's like, you mean I'm going to be here alone? No thanks. Yeah. And it, honestly, the whole thing feels so... Like, any anytime I see that scene where he's being, like, uh, trapped on on, a, <coughs> on the wheel with the rope, I mm. my heart breaks. Yeah. Breaks. It's sad. Mm-hmm. And it, imagine... It, this happens in the book, too, and can, can you imagine this guy who's also deaf, not knowing what's going on and confused. I mean, mm-hmm. it is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, no wonder, like, Ezreal comes up and is like, no, I'm going to free him. This is not okay. That riles Frollo up quite a bit, but then she, she like, he goes, he's like, you arrest her, and then she pulls a vanishing act, and he's just like, witchcraft. Which, like, really? Really? No. How many don't. times have you seen gypsy, gypsy stage tricks? Like, it's a trap door, dude. Yeah, it's not hard to get. Yeah, because she's she she pulls some seeming magic acts, but we know they're all just magic tricks. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Frollo's just looking for an excuse to be like, "Oh, good, she really is a heretic. I don't have I can I can deal with her." You get a sense that of her nice revolutionary angle a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's like, "Yells about justice. It's about justice." Uh, great inequality that's angles a great here. Scene. Yeah. yeah, the whole chase through the the festival. This is good. Oh yeah, this is it's actually funny and uh um like has tension at the same time, so it's that's a well, really well done scene. Yep. Also has the, the good uh running joke of I'm free, I'm free. Oh yeah, we start that Dang joke. It. Dang it. <laughs> um so Quasimodo goes back to the cathedral first. Mm-hmm. Also, and then and then Esmeralda flees into the cathedral, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then she meets Phoebus in there. They have a little. They have some banter. They have a mini fight. Um, the banter's actually. Is, hmm? We have the greatest iteration of insult sword fighting pioneered by Monkey Island in yeah. this film. <laughs> I thank you for bringing that up, and thankfully not written by Orson Scott Card. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's pretty good. I, I really did half expect, like, as I'm watching this happen, like, if uh, if Phoebus had suddenly said, you fight like a dairy farmer, I would have been like, ooh, ooh, and it wouldn't have been out of place. Oh, appropriate. You fight like a cow. <laughs> I'm shaking. I'm shaking. <laughs> I just, I love the exchange of when he's, when Esmeralda has the, the candelabra, and he's fighting her, and he says, you fight almost as well as a man. She just fires back immediately. I was about to say the same thing to you. I was just like, oh! Savage. Now, how do you feel about the chemistry between these two characters? Because this is kind of where they they have a real proper encounter for the first time. I think they have good chemistry, but I feel like there should have been more on that if we were going to develop a love story on them. Yeah. I I don't think they had enough screen time together. I I feel like they could have done without a love story at all? Mm-hmm. 
Like, if you're not going to have Quasimodo and Esmeralda get together, maybe maybe don't have a love story at all. I mean... That's, that's one of the tricky parts, because I feel the thing with... The top, the one of her defining features is she is a gorgeous woman, and this is based off a novel where there's four men lusting after her, and three of them are Quasimodo, Frollo, and uh, Phoebus. The fourth one is not in the movie because the fourth one is actually based on a real person that Victor Hugo put in the novel. <laughs> Take that, you. Yeah. Uh, his name's like. Like Peter. yeah, let's not let's not do that. Yeah. And it's also, like, we already got enough characters. We don't need a fourth person for this. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So it's kind of hard not to put in, like, these two men having an attraction towards her. But at the same time, I I feel like... Like, I do like the idea of Quasimodo being attracted towards her, but then um, accepting that uh, it's better to have... It's okay to have a friendship with her. And that actually is what separates him from Frollo. He can actually, like, you can be attracted to someone and still respect them as a person and consider them a friend. I, I do. I do want to talk about that scene um, uh, as when we get there. Um, so, but like, yeah, I think I, I agree. I, I The reason I brought it up was because I just feel like, I, I yeah, there's, they don't have enough time together for it to, I feel like, develop organically yes and maybe I, it, it, again in the musical we saw they there's a scene where they they legit just have a tryst that's it yeah that's all it is and then later that develops into something so there's clearly attraction between them mm-hmm. but it doesn't blossom into anything deeper until later yeah. but i but one of the things that sets frollo off in the musical is he's following phoebus to try and figure out where esmeralda is and he sees them have this encounter in a in a tavern that leads to them having this tryst, and that's when he goes and does has the song, his song later in the in the movie or in the in the musical. musical. But so that I thought was interesting because that was a way to develop it more. Obviously, not in the in the that's a little too risque for a Disney movie. But here, um, I mean, it's whatever. I, I think mainly the important part is now she's basically stuck in the cathedral. Yeah, the the idea is she claims, or well, uh, Phoebus is the one who does, who says this, like. She's claimed sanctuary, and by claiming sanctuary, that means she is protected by the church as long as she's still in Notre Dame, and Phoebus can't do, or not Phoebus, uh, Frollo can't do anything. And there's a really horrible moment where Frollo, like, grabs her from behind oh and, like, is threatening her, but then he takes a moment to sniff her hair, like, and I'm like, whoa, dang. Again, this is a Disney movie with a G rating, and I love yeah. that they that, they that can go past it, because... The subtext of not even subtext that is on the nose, but they can get away with it. But but the implication of it is just really skeevy. Well, even like they never say it out loud, but he even she says, "What are you doing?" And he says, "I'm imagining a rope around her ma- your neck." And she's like, "I know what you were imagining." Like she knows. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It's probably it's probably the same thing. The you rope know who around the know? neck and the other thing are probably yeah. oh, connected. Oh my goodness! Oh my yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, and then she he's able to turn on her like, oh, of course you're uh, uh, such a clever witch. Of course you would think such dirty thoughts and all that. Or like, yeah, you're beguiling my you're begu- you beguile the mind and trick people, yeah. like just like anybody Basically, else in your kind. You're evil. I'm pure. So 
Yeah. That again, I'm justifying my. He has to justify it to himself later, but we, we, we could spend like three hours talking about Hellfire alone and the yeah, context there. But we're well. Let's keep things moving. What do you think? Uh, yeah, this actually leads to um, her to sing a song called "God Help the Outcast." I like this song. I like. You know, here's the thing. I love all the songs with one exception. <laughs> this is a beautiful song. It's lovely, and because it- because I was I was saying to Kayla like. One of the things I really appreciate about this movie is it's showing the way it's just showing religion as a thing that people handle different ways. And it can be used, you know, it can be used to justify, you know, evil acts, as is the case of Frollo. But it really does serve as a source of comfort and hope for a lot of people. And I think Esmeralda, who normally doesn't strike me as a terribly, you know, religious person, she you see her, you know, talking to, you know, a statue of the Virgin Mary. And then she has this song and it's it's beautiful and slow and somber. And I love that um, everybody else in the church is asking for things for themselves. They're praying for God to bless them. Mm-hmm. But she says, I don't need anything, but I want you to take care of those who are less fortunate than me. I pray for the out for outcasts everywhere. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that's, that's good. It really says a lot about her character. Yes. Yes. It's great. And it's a, such a contrast between, you know, her and the people in the church who I don't think it's wrong that they want, you know, to ask for things for themselves, but it just shows that she has, you know, in her, in a weird way, she has a little bit of a low key, uh, you know, high moral fiber. Mm. Also, we do see a stained glass window with Jesus on it, which is surprising to me. That the stained glass window is so beautiful. It is. It is. Oh my gosh. The inside of Notre Dame is so beautifully. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm rambling, but I just really like this song. But uh, I mean, even later on, when uh, so you see Esmeralda like start to talk with Quasimodo, there's a parallel there. So they're both outcasts, just in different ways. Yes, Esmeralda is gorgeous, but she was born uh, Romani and called a gypsy and poor, and like her people are basically persecuted. So she, her, her, just how she was, where, who she was born into, or the family she was born into makes her an outcast, where Quasimodo is an outcast due to his looks. They're both, um, they're both victims of societal circumstance, really. Yes. Like, it shouldn't be that way, but it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, dang. Yeah. This is heavy. Yeah. Is that like, why? The fact, the fact that I didn't see this movie as a child and saw it as an adult... I watched it as an adult, and the entire time I'm watching it, I'm thinking to myself, this was a kid's movie? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. This was a kid's movie. Or, well, you they know, intended the whole... this to be, oh, the gargoyles are on screen. That's what they were. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The, the gargoyles are such, they're such stop gaps in terms of enjoyment for this movie. They just, they put, they, they thematically, tonally, anytime they show up, they just don't make any sense. They, they're not funny. They're not... They feel like a roadblock. Yeah, and they're trying to convince him, like, ooh, she's after you, lover boy. She has a crush on you. It's like, no, don't tell him that. Why would you tell him that? Like, that's not okay. Again, they should be characters that he talks to to, like, bounce ideas off of, not these these three characters are trying to convince him of something. Like, that that includes basically going after a woman that 
actually does not like him in that way. Bad advice, gargoyles. Yep. And we've established they're not just figments of his imagination. They're actually... Real. Yeah, which sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the moment when he's introducing her to the Bells, like their old friends. Yeah. I love that bit. And they're all named... Aren't they all named Marie? Uh, no, there's a, No, it was... Uh, there's a, a... They have a bunch of different names. Um, uh, I can't remember all of them, but... Uh, Sound design here is really good when they're yelling yeah. into the Bells. Jolly burps in a bell, and it's actually a funny burp moment, mm-hmm. which surprises me. I just love how scared the goat looks after he burps, and it, like, echoes. He's like, oh, my God. <laughs> Speaking of, oh, my God, when they get to the, they get that view over the, uh, the, the, the Seine, and they oh, see the sunset, it's... This scope, man. This scope. This mm. scope. This goat. Mm-hmm. Just, mm. Mm. This is a good movie. This is a good. This movie. is a good movie. Very good movie. Good movie with some problems, but still a good movie. Um, now what happens after this? I'm trying to remember. Oh, uh, Esmeralda is like, I can't stay here, and he and Quasi's like, Well, why not? And she's like, Because uh, uh, as Frilla states, gypsies don't do well behind closed walls. Yep. And that makes sense. Uh, they're nomads, so. Mm-hmm. Um, so Quasi helps get her out. Did something happen? Nothing happens between there. We just go for her hanging out with him for a while and them kind of forming a, a friendship to her needing to leave the cathedral. Honestly, I feel like the time it takes, like this moment here, actually, there's enough time between them that I believe their friendship. I yeah, I believe it too. Like, I completely believe the chemistry and believe that they would have a connection. And I also believe that Quasimodo would form feelings just because he's never, he hasn't had a lot of human contact. Yeah, this is the first person who has ever been actually kind to him. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's easy to mistake that for, you know, it's, a, you know, for, for love sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. And you can't help how you feel. Yeah. Right? And like. That's, that's why. I- and it, so that's why when he does the, you know, the Heaven's Light song that comes a little, in a little bit. Yeah. Um. It's beautiful. It's a little beautiful moment. It's a beautiful yeah. song that's ruined by the gargoyles. Freaking gargoyles. Yes. So that's here. That's the tragic part about the gargoyles. So, because like uh, once Esmeralda leaves and um, oh, she gives him the the map. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she gives. He, he, She's like, if you ever want to seek sanctuary elsewhere, like basically, she's saying you're welcome among. My people. Yes. Like, you welcomed me into your sanctuary. Which I think is a great little... When you think about it that way, that's a great little moment that shows that she... You know, even though they haven't known each other that long, she's like, well, I trust you. Here Mm -hmm. you go. Uh, And, oh, there is a moment with him and Phoebus, because Phoebus wants to see her. Which is weird! That that happened after this, right? Yeah, this happened right after... It's weird, because... He never really saw him interact with her. I feel like there should have been a moment where Phoebus spotted them. Like, they, there, it could have been a quick, like, animated moment where Phoebus spotted them talking. Yeah. As he was trying to look for them. Uh-huh. And then he's like, oh, hmm. And then that way, that whole scene is like, uh, tell her all that. And he's like, why? Because she trusts you. Or, or yeah, yeah, you're, uh, she's very lucky. Why? To have a friend like you. It's like, 
<laughs> was it imply? Was the line implying that he'd? The line implies that he'd seen them interacting, yeah. but then again, he saw them at the festival. But but, but that's it, the only it time, was very right? Small, like there was their interaction wasn't okay. Like yeah, that is weird. That is odd. Yeah. Okay, it, I, I I'm with you. I feel like you could have just easily animated like him trying to look and then spotting Esmeralda leaving while or like them chatting or something so he can that line would be justified. Oh, oh boy. But, yeah. And then I think that's what leads to Heaven's Light after that. Yeah, that's after that. They had Phoebus have that again. Oh, by the way, could you put me down? I yeah. did I did enjoy that bit. That's, that was funny. That was a fun um, Heaven's Light is nice. There's so, gargoyles involved, and that makes it suck. Here's the problem. So, the idea behind Heaven's Light is that it's a song that's like, uh, didn't you say it's the same... It, when it, when it, the camera pans up at the end, it's a much happier-sounding version of the Bells of Notre Dame. And as we've established, Hellfire and the Bells of Notre Dame have the same, you know, motif... Mm-hmm. But one of them is ominous and in minor chords, and one of them is in major chords. So, and so heaven's light is like the counter of. It's uh, light and lilting and floaty, and it goes up, and then of course, hellfire is ominous and sweeping and booming, and yeah. Yeah. So with heaven's light, I feel like that song could have been more powerful if you got rid of the gargoyles, because um, it's supposed to be a counter to hellfire. But it feels It's a little like, lead into Hellfire. Yeah, but it feels like it kind of pales Well then again. Hellfire though. Uh, is it time is, yes. is, yes. yes. is it time? Is it time? Is it time? Okay. We're gonna talk about the okay. best Disney I wanna, song ever. I wanna give the floor yes. I feel like I feel like we've been talking for a bit. I wanna give the floor to our guests to start this one. I want I wanna know what y'all y'all think. Any any thoughts, any ideas so we can kinda get the discussion going? Hellfire is in my opinion the best song in the film. Yes, it is. It is. It is absolutely. And it is probably one of the strongest songs that Disney has ever written for any of their villains. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not as singable or as fun as something like Be Prepared or Poor Unfortunate Souls. Uh, but I or think Friends on the one Other the Side. Most, or Friends on the Other Side. <laughs> but I think it's one of the most powerful Disney villain songs. Because what I really like about it is it's not him reveling in how evil he is. It's him asking for help because he feels that he's doing something wrong. And it's because, yeah, it's the whole idea of lust versus religion. Am I wrong to feel this way? Like, I'm supposed to hate and revile this person, and yet I can't get her out of my head. Is she bewitching me? I'm turned... I, I can't... I, yeah, everything I've known is being thrown for a loop, and I need... And, and I'm... Con- and conflict. It's conflict. And he still thinks it's her fault. Yes. Yeah, that's the main thing. It's not... I love the bit, you know, it's not my fault, and all those creepy hooded figures in his vision are going, Maya culpa. Oh, yeah. Yes. The animation with the music here is amazing. The visuals are just incredible. You really feel like you're inside his head. And I was... One of the things I had heard a long time ago when somebody was reviewing the film was they were saying, who are these hooded figures? And I realized that when I was watching it recently, they're the saints of Notre Dame. Mmm... Because if you look at them, they're way taller than him, just like the statues on the outside of the building are. Mm-hmm. They're looking down on him. And so it's very much like I'm like, 
I'm pretty sure that's what they're intended to be. That's what I thought. I, I thought they were like re- like religious figures, like kind of like monks or. Um... They're they're nebulous saints or just figures of judgment. They're figures of judgment who are judging Frollo now, who is a judge. Yes. They're figures of higher authority than him. And then the fire and how she, the flames look like her and oh my goodness, it's so well animated. That was actually in the musical. I feel like that was weaker than the. Well, it's hard and it's hard because this is such this this is a spectacle in its own way. But this is like like so much so many scenes in this remind me of kind of Night on Bald Mountain. Just because of the fire and the wispy shadows that come flying by, and I love that because Night on Ball Mountain is my favorite segment of Fantasia. Mm. So like this has this this has um and it's hellish. There's moments of this that are genuinely hellish, which is great. Yeah, but in the musical, it's like it's hard because all they do is kind of stand there. Yeah, and they don't really make use of the stage or anything, and for during Hellfire for that musical, I I and. From what I've seen of, like, other versions of that musical, um, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they could have, they could make it better. They really, I mean, look at what they did in the movie. They, with, you could do a lot to reinterpret that on the stage. Like, really? Yeah. Oh, man, this song is so good, though. I just really love how it's, it's a really good illustration of the, of the classic, the, really, the, the best way to write a villain is to write a character who doesn't understand that what he's doing is wrong. Yes. And I really love the song, how it starts with him basically calling out to God that he's being lured into sin and how it's bad and it's not his fault. And then it turns into, well, if she won't have me, then she'll die. Right, because, you know, I guess the alternative is, like, the one way I can save her is if she turns to me, basically. This actually turns into a madness. This actually becomes an obsession. Yeah, he, he's obsessed with her. Um, I'm going to... This is a behind-the-scenes thing, but uh, Don Hahn, who is the producer, yeah, he said that this scene was bluntly inspired by... Um, uh, part in Schindler's in the list where uh, Ralph Fiennes' character who, despite being a Nazi who kills Jews, desires his Jewish maid. Oh! Yeah, that... Wow! Okay, I get that. Mm-hmm. Dang, this, this is the best... This is the best... This, be this might be the best part of the movie. Just because it's such a good... Mm. Here's what, how, to, how to make a complex villain in one song. Here's what I've come to realize about this movie. It has problems... But there's perfect moments in this movie. Like, there's strangely perfect moments in this movie where you're just like, I I don't know how you could have made that scene any better. Like, I cannot imagine how you could make Hellfire any better than it is. Right. And with Tony Jay singing? You, I I didn't, you know, as you think about it, it's like, I don't know if I've ever heard Tony Jay sing in anything else. And he's incredible here. Mm Mm-hmm. He's just an incredibly skilled performer. We, we, we... we I could talk about this. Rest in peace, Tony J. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, uh, and to, to put a final sort of stopgap, or, you know, stopgap, to put a final pin on this, I love the moment 
I forgot, I'd forgotten about this. When he meets Phoebus in the morning and his eyes are all bloodshot and his line is, oh, I had a problem with my fireplace. I was like, oh, this is so good. Ah. Anyway, this is where time kind of starts speeding up because now we get to, I'm literally tearing the country, you know, the countryside upside down trying to find Esmeralda. And he's becoming more and more manic as it goes, you know? He's rounding up gypsies. He's pushing their Vardo into, like, the, the water. He's, And then if, the part, of course, that's crazy is when he sets a windmill on fire while a family's still in there. And they're an innocent family. They haven't done anything. They're not even gypsies. I mean, that not, I, like... I mean, I mean, they're they're not they're as innocent. usual target demographic. Yeah, exactly, they're innocent by his standards, exactly. and yet he's still like, even if for the prospect of harboring gypsies. And that's when Phoebus says, "Uh, no, this is not okay." And he's like, "I wasn't, tr- uh, I wasn't trained to kill people, uh, innocent people." And he's like, "But you were trained to follow orders." And I gotta give props, to Phoebus, without any good guy Phoebus continuing to be actually a pretty decent character written decently written character in this story mm-hmm. not an amazing character but when he shows up he has stuff to do and I like him mm-hmm. so um I, I feel like his like him doing what Polo says is like this is a ridiculous thing to be doing I do appreciate that he drew a line somewhere yeah and that when he Where does hmm What's the line he says when he's just like, you'll be court-martialed for this, and he's like, then consider this my resignation. Yeah. And dives the window. And that... And then that's... Uh, he actually saves the family, and then it's like, nope, time to kill him. You're, you're <laughs> Don't hit my horse! <laughs> A thousand arrows are flying at, Fe- at Phoebus as he's riding away, and oh, it's yeah, like, he can... don't hit my horse! I'm like, are I, you serious? I, I forgot he can... Or not kidnaps. He takes Frollo's horse and, like, runs away uh, with it, and, um... Oh! Actually, I remember, because Esmeralda witnesses all this in disguise, and she actually saves him, because um, she grabs a rock and throws it at, um... Frollo's horse's uh, button that leads to, that actually gets him to. That's escape. how that's how Frollo falls off the horse. Yes, and gets Phoebus to escape mm-hmm. and run on the horse. So he gets shot though in the back. Oh yeah, he still gets hurt, but. But uh, yeah, she gets she pulls him out of the the river and is like, "We got to get you out of here." And that's when she takes him to Notre Dame. Yeah, and then we get the worst scene. Oh, because a guy like you happens before. Yeah. Dang it. Okay. I don't want to talk about this too long, but I hate this song. I hate it. Oh, the song is awesome. There's no redeeming qualities to it. Except for that part where Laverne is on a piano. That's kind of funny. <laughs> I honestly don't remember That's the, the song. part where I figured out Laverne was a woman. I'm like, oh. Okay. Oh. I just... Oh, you're a I, woman. I like Laverne. If Laverne had been I the... your name Laverne. Yeah. Oh. If Laverne had been the only gargoyle, that would have been okay. You know, just have her be like a cantankerous gargoyle who Quasimodo is friends with. You can drop Victor and Hugo. They're annoying, and I don't like them. And I don't like this song. It's them giving bad advice to to uh, Quasimodo and building him up so he can get torn down worse later, when it already would have happened. You know? What? Mm-hmm. They're bad friends. They're such bad friends. They really are. They're bad friends. And they don't even redeem themselves later. They don't do anything 
apart from like fighting people who are trying to assault the cathedral, they they don't do anything to really work their way back into his good graces or anything. Like honestly, they're just there's no redeeming. There's hardly any redeeming qualities to the gargoyles. They're annoying. And yep. then I feel like they were trying to make like a uh like the song was supposed to be like their genie song cuz they make a bunch of stupid references that would make no sense as well, you know. Like there's a point where they make his hair look like um like a French Amadeus. Amadeus is like ha ha, get it? And it's just like it's painful. It's a weird anachronistic song that doesn't fit in the movie like everything else the gargoyles do. Mm-hmm. I... Yeah. Yeah, just... So anyway, a guy that, uh, that abomination ends, and then uh, Phoebus is brought in by... Uh, by uh, Phoebus is brought in, and he's injured. And um, there's another random gypsy with es- Esmeralda, by the way. Yes. Who's helping carry Phoebus in? Mm-hmm. I noticed that for some reason that stuck out to me this time because I'm like, wait, who's this random side character, and why doesn't he also come to vouch for Quasimodo later when they go to the Court of Miracles and almost get killed? Anyway, I don't know. Just thinking about continu- continuity. Um, there's some awkward. Um, there's that bit where she pours the wine on the wound, and then they kiss, and Quasimodo is very sad. Because you've yeah. been built up by that whole dumb song earlier. Mm-hmm. But also, also, I mean, yeah. If you're crushing on someone and you don't say anything and then you see them with someone else, yeah, it does kind of hurt, you know? Mm-hmm. But he also, gets over like, it. He moves on. Also, like, Quasimodo definitely fell in love with the very first woman he've ever seen in his entire life. Yeah. <laughs> up close, at least. Up close, you know, I mean, he's seen them from a distance afar, and he's like, woman, um, and she's, and she's like the first person who has ever been nice to him mm-hmm. in the history of ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and, like, so I, he definitely I, fell a crush, got a crush on the first girl he's ever met. Yeah. The thing is with this, I feel like this could have just been done subtly, like, he just sort of has a crush, and then, uh, if they would have taken out the scenes with the gargoyles and put it more into developing uh, Esmeralda's relationship with Bro- uh, uh, Phoebus, then uh, maybe this whole scene could have been like, oh, this hurts, but then and then uh, but then it's like he still feels for her, like he, he still wants to help her, which that's I, I, I think that's, again the, this, that main difference between him and Frollo he can ha- have an attraction towards this woman, but still accept that she does not have the same feelings back and still be a friend to her. Good guy, Quasimodo. Good guy, Quasimodo. Mm-hmm. Be more like Quasimodo. Mm-hmm. Don't be that guy who's like, I'm in the friend zone. Nah. No. I need, he, he's a, he defends Phoebus when Frollo shows up. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, he, he, he has to kick it, kick his unconscious body under a table. I Well, I do have to admit, it does lead to some humorous parts, because, I mean, of course, Quasimodo, who's the, just realized, oh, they're, they actually like each other, is going to feel, uh... Oh, Paris is on fire. A bunch of Paris is on fire at this point, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah, okay. It's gonna yes. Be, but, like, Quasi's going to still feel a little more antagonistic towards 
Phoebus, and yeah. that just leads us a little bit of humor. Yeah. And then what has he got that I don't got? Well, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. Um. So, because uh, that was the point where, yeah, there, there, that whole scene is a tense moment where Quasimodo is like trying to hide Phoebus while Frollo is there, and they're supposed to have like their typical lunch or dinner or whatever it is. Can't tell anymore because. Paris is on fire. Um, That was when Frollo was, like, suspected Quasimodo knew where she was and was doing the whole, like, I'm gonna get her. Yep. That's right, because... Unless you, like, I know where she is, I know where the Court of Miracles is, I'm going to get her, and Quasimodo was thinking he had to get to her first to warn her. Mm Mm-hmm. Frollo is actually a very smart character for the most part. Yeah. I mean, it's... When he's not, you know... I don't know. But, like, he was able to figure out... It's like, she's nowhere to be found unless... And then looks to do the, um... Cathedral. Cathedral is like... And he's like, oh... How did she get out of there? Hmm. And then actually comes up with the plan, Quasimodo will lead me to her. Yep. Because, again, he's used to gaslighting and manipulating... Yeah. Him his whole life. He might as well do it again. And he does. It works. You because about finding Yeah, we found the Court of Miracles and we're attacking at dawn. Oh no, Quasi Quasi has to go like warn them. And uh that just leads them to the Court of Miracles and I like that he's able to figure out the, the map though, and that leads them to that um that leads the two of them to the, the churchyard, the graveyard. I like the interactions between Quasi and Phoebus. Like, it's antagonistic, but, like, you realize they kind of do work well together in a weird way. It could, it could have become a buddy comedy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and they go in the catacombs, and there's some uh, lots and lots of skeletons in the sewer area. And some of them are actually um, members of the court in disguise. This is great. I love this. I love this bit. The Court of Miracles song. The Court of Miracles song is fun. Clopin is a little more villainous here. And again, I think this part's a little weird because I'm like, you saw these two at the festival and you assume they're Frollo's spies? Well... Well, I mean, maybe, I guess it would be safe to assume because now Phoebus is there with Quasimodo and both of them have interacted with Esmeralda before. Okay, as I think about it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Clopin would jump to that conclusion. Yeah, you got the captain who's been following... Uh, Frollo around as he's been burning brands to the ground, and then Quasimodo, who's only just been seen once at the festival, and his base, everyone knows, is uh, his little minion. <laughs> Frollo's quote, minion. minion. Quote-unquote. Yeah. But I like how, I like how like, comically dark this thing is, because they're talking about how no one gets out alive, and how they're gonna, ba- they're gonna execute them. Mm-hmm. It's great. <laughs> My, they almost do! They My do. favorite line is when they muffle them, and they're like, any last words? They all say that. <laughs> it's a good bit. I like it a it's lot. It's a really... This song is so weird, but I love it. Yeah. It's like, weird, but it's, it's, it's weird and funny in a way that um, a guy like you is not, which is also kind of supposed to be a, a funny song. You know? Cool. This is actually a funny song. <laughs> I think also this is a uh, a song that's dark in the sense like oh wow like it's gal it's literal gallows humor yeah 
Or, or, or like the other stuff is like a, this is more like, whoa, this is like some dark humor. After everything that's happened. I also like the bit, I remember this bit very vividly, the bit where he, he's got the little hand puppet. It's like, I object! And he hits it with a hammer and just goes, darn. <laughs> uh, so Esmeralda steps in and saves them. And they talk about how Frollo's coming to get him. And unfortunately, that's when Frollo kicks in the door and goes, surprise! This is so bad, I shouldn't be laughing. And he does that thing to Quasimodo again. Where he just glares at him. And that's enough to shut him down. Um, everybody gets oh, around. Except at this part, they actually tie Quasimodo up. They yeah. did. I'm just saying, like, before that, there's that moment where he doesn't say anything to Quasimodo. He just glares at him. And I, I, again, to me, those moments stick out because it's like, you'd think this would be a moment where he would chide him or something even before that. But I like that there's that beat repeated bit. It just looks at him with such disgust. And it's just that, that's, and yeah, they do chain him up later, but like, he looks at Frollo and then Frollo just looks at him. And I, I don't know. There's something good about this. Question. Do the chains seem excessive? Like, does that seem excessive to you guys? Yes. Yeah. Nah. I, I think so. I feel like I feel like Frollo would want to do that because he's. Yeah, but, but it looks so weird. Like, but, like he's he looks like it's in a web. Like he could have been chained, but like it's almost weirdly chained. And I, I feel like they just pile chains on top of him. Be like, you sure he's changed? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but but I he did like he he did arrange Quasi. Huh? Chain him up like a dog. Yeah. He was. They, but you I think they, I think them. he wanted to arrange Quasimodo so he could front and center look at Esmeralda's execution from that perch. Think about that. Mm. Yeah, like that is arranged so he can't look away and wa- and he has to watch Esmeralda burn. But it's so weirdly done. Like, I I know. I feel, I feel like it's a weird artistic choice. Yeah. yeah, it does make it more dramatic when he pulls himself free like the Hulk. <laughs> but I just feel like. Not all those chains were connected to things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like when you're when you're, like when you're drawing things, you're gonna be like, all right, this connects to that, and that connects to that. But like, I feel like, and this chain just wraps around and just is connected to itself. I mean, it's it could be just impressive enough if his only his hands and feet were chained, like instead of like this whole crisscrossy, not sure where everything is. Mm-hmm. Like, we, did, we didn't need that. Um, oh, by the way, how horrible is it, like, Frollo tells her, while she's, like, tied to the stake, about to be burned. Oh, and the like, whole town turned out to watch this, by the way. Well, that's a normal thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a very just... fickle town. Well, yeah. as Terry Pratchett said, the crowd that, that applauds your coronation is the same that attends your beheading. <laughs> mm-hmm. True. And, and you know, hey, they watched you dance in the square a few days ago. Now they're here to watch you burn. Crowd's just kind of like that. It's Paris. There's not a ton to do around this time period. Um, but yeah, um, and and he, and he has, and he's 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 unfortunately with the laws, he's kind of dead to rights to do it. You did witchcraft. I'm gonna burn you for witchcraft. But he tells her directly, "Choose me or the fire." I'm like, oh my god, what do you? I mean, yeah, the implications. Like, what do you mean, choose you? Like, gross. Like, are you, like, I can only think gross things. Like, I don't think he's gonna marry her. In the, 
I that remember. Was Ted, I thought it was. Yeah, yeah I, I would have thought. That. In the, I was in, like, oh, he wants to marry her. Gross. Citing the musical again, he said he. I remember one of the things he he toyed with the idea was like, I can save her if she commits herself to me. I can turn her into. I can turn her to the faith, and then she be mine. But then I and then I also don't have to feel guilty about having these feelings for her. Uh, are you talking about the musical? Yeah, the musical. Yeah, like he actually talks to us like, like be with me and act like turn to God and then also is while he's talking about that actually hints at her actually being with him. Yeah. And she's like, no, what? No. And I can't exactly blame her for spitting in his face and choosing to die nobly than like wanting to settle down with this weird creep. So. Uh, See, I would have said yes, and then one night just stabbed him in the back. In the okay, good point. Way. Good point. I, actually, yeah, that'd be smart. I yeah. wouldn't put it past Esmeralda to do something like that, too. But she... Like, she oh, yes. <laughs> I guess she wanted to go oh. out nobly? I don't know. But then we went... But, you know, because like, you know, I'm just thinking practicality. Or I'm just like, yeah, and then be like, oh, yes. And then, like, you know, when his guard is down, and he thinks he's won... Stab him in the back. Perfect. Run away. And then, yeah, you're already a fugitive. Why not just continue to be a fugitive and put murder on your list of things? That's perfect. I'm not even being sarcastic. That's like a decent avenue. I mean, if anyone deserves it, it's that guy. Oh, yeah. But we wouldn't get that amazing animation where quasi- I guess it's a testament- I guess it's a testament to my character and the fact that Heather has not stabbed me in the back in the six years- <laughs> Alex, have you? How many genocides have you committed in the six years we've married? In, uh, in the six years we've been married, none. <laughs> okay. Oh no, no, I'm just kidding. I want to know about For this backstory. I have not committed any genocides. Good. Yes. You haven't persecuted a specific race of people, have you? No. Okay. Good. You got to, once a, like don't pass me off as a bad person. This guy like I'm commits genocide. Oh like, yeah, no, of course he's a no, bad. No. There is no doubt in my mind he's conflicted. Sure, and it's entertaining to see him be that conflicted, like damaged human being in terms of that sense. But there is no forgiving this ass. Also, really, Heather and Alex. Also, what? he tortures people for fun. Yes, tortures people for fun. Yeah, I mean Heather and Alex. One teaches students about science. The other helps people mentally. Yeah. They are the complete opposite. Oh, I know. I know. Of Frollo as there could ever be. I'm just trying to, you know, make sure that Alex doesn't have a dark backstory that we don't know about. <laughs> According to my students, I probably do torture them. <laughs> the... Yes, with dad jokes. Oh. oh. So many dad jokes. My puns are legendary. <laughs> you know what else is legendary? This new animation coming up where Quasimodo saves her, and you're just like, oh my god, oh my god. Oh, it's beautiful. And he screams, sanctuary! While holding her her limp uh, body over his head. And, and, like, pumping her like iron. You know what? This would be a great moment where you could pl- replace the audio with the music from Donkey Kong. <laughs> what? <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> do, 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 as he's scaling the... The cathedral holding this woman gets to the top, and instead of it going, um, you know, sanctuary, he goes, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> I know there's probably a video out there somewhere. Yeah, that's probably a video. I'm sorry. Anyway, this, also, yeah, this part's great. Before he, before he saves her, 
he breaks free of the chains yes. that have him bound up, which is the final culmination of all the foreshadowing about how strong and agile he is. Right. Because he breaks stone uh-huh. to escape from that. We thought, oh, we're, what do we know? We're made of stone. We just thought you were made of something stronger. That's like the one good line they have in there. And the it's the one, the gargoyles, and it's the one line they kept in the musical. Yeah. It's a great line. And so he is. He is made of something stronger because he tears the chains and the stone around him, swings down, grabs Esmeralda, climbs the cathedral like it's nothing. By the way, again, most easily led crowd, while he's yelling sanctuary, the crowd is just cheering (laughs) after they have They they want a spectacle. They get a spectacle. (laughs) They are super easily, because then Phoebus gets out of his cage, and he's just like, hey, everybody, we need to fight back against Frollo and his forces. And then they do. He has burned down your town. He is a... Oh, yeah, that's right. We came out here to watch this burning, but then, like, our houses are on fire behind us. Okay. Yeah, Frollo's a bad guy. You know, I'm just in it for the riot. You know... Riot! Riot! Victor Hugo put the really, really willing crowd of Paris into Hunchback of Notre Dame because the crowd at the barricade did not get nearly this much support in Les Mis when they really needed it. Oh, man, they did. (laughs) Do you hear the people sing? No, not really. My house is on fire. (laughs) Oh. Anyhow, uh, Frollo's having none of this. So, But then big all-out fight starts. Crazy things happen. I'm free! I'm free! Dang it! Happens again. Uh... (laughs) I love that bit. Yeah. yeah. It actually is. Again, there's a lot of other funny moments. The gargoyles are so unnecessary. Uh, anyway. Okay, I'm going to admit, I know you were like, Ugh, about this joke. I actually kind of appreciated the Laverne doing the fly, my pretties, fly, fly, and it turning into a Wizard of Oz reference. I'm like, okay, that's kind of cute. I'm not fond of it. Okay. Okay. The meta of it, because I know how much Disney really wants that IP. <laughs> There's no reason they couldn't do The Wizard of Oz. It's been the first one. It's in the public domain. The film is still under copyright, I believe. Not the, the film, yes, but the property itself that it's based off, L. Frank Baum's book? No, it's in the public domain. That's oh, yeah, they, they've used the book, but they want, it, they want that movie. They want to do The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Yeah. They want that so bad. They, I mean, they did return to Oz. Oh, yeah, they did. I forgot about that. They did return to Oz. They did Oz the Great and Powerful. They're dancing around the wizard. They're, they're getting there. They dance around the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Anyway, uh, let's, let's jump ahead a little bit. Um, the gargoyles do some fighting. Esmeralda's outside sleeping off all the smoke she inhaled. Um, but, but there's a moment where Quasimodo thinks she's died and sadly doesn't know how to look for a pulse, so... She's just unconscious, like, really unconscious. And Frollo comes in with a knife behind his back. That part, oh my god. So when he's about to stab in the back, he sees the shadow, turns around, grabs his wrist, and he just looks at him. There's this look of, like, it's not anger, it's this look of just utter, like, I can't believe you tried to do that. And Quasi almost looks kind of crushed, like, confused and crushed, like, I know you were already a bad person, technically, Frollo, like he's, he thinks about it, but like the one person who took me in after all these years is trying to kill me now. Like you see the hurt, mm-hmm. 
And then that hurt quickly turns to anger. I'm glad it, he turns around on that. But that moment, that moment stuck, sticks out to me. Like, this was my guardian. He was awful to me, but this was someone who t- took me in when no one else did. That's what he's thinking. And it's like, and he just tried to kill me. You know? Wow. Quasimodo is having a very bad day. <laughs> and and Frollo has this terrified look in his face when he realizes, oh, this guy just broke chains and he's has a hold of me and is angry. Yeah. But even when he's angry, he doesn't try to kill Frollo back. No. He, he throws the knife down, and he's like, all my life you told me about how wicked the world is, but the only wicked person I see here is you. You know? Or bad, bad people. I don't remember the line specifically. Yeah, you, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. you know. That's when Esmeralda wakes up. And I appreciate that Frollo tells Quasimodo that he killed his mom because it offers some good closure yep. in the story. But I feel like if I was the asshole who did that, I would take that secret to my grave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm like, he has no reason to tell Quasimodo this because it would just piss Quasimodo off more. And in all actuality, he probably should lean on the I saved your life some more. Yeah. Yeah. That's like that might save his life. He's running around with a sword. He did throw a... He threw the priest practically down the stairs. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, it it wraps up the narrative nicely, but as a character decision, I'm not sure I agree with it. I can can agree with you there, for sure. Um, This is a good bit, though, the little fight they have on the the parapets. Mm -hmm. And and I love the moment where Esmeralda's hanging on to Quasimodo... He's standing on top of a gargoyle holding a sword. He gives that whole thing about, and he shall smite the wicked and cast them into the fiery pit. He's Even in this moment, he still feels justified in his actions. Mm-hmm. And that's yes. when... The plummet counter! Right! Ready to uptick the plummet counter? Thank you. All right. So Frollo joins the plummet counter in a pretty epic plummet. Kind of, like... Shocking! Like he he falls and then grabs onto like one of like I guess a gargoyle. Thing. Oh, we didn't even talk about the part where uh, Quasimodo pulls pours the molten uh, the molten steel off the cathedral, and we see like just liquid like golden fire. That shot where you just see it raining down from the cathedral. That's a good moment. I forgot that was a thing. That's a oh, good yeah. moment. He killed so many people doing that. He sure did. And in the music, in the in the musical, he totally does. They don't sugarcoat that. And also in the musical, he doesn't hesitate. He grabs. He actually grabs throat Frollo and throws him off the cathedral. There's no moral. There's no uh, dancing around it here. In this one, uh, God basically kills Frollo when you think about it. Yeah. Well, what I what I really like. Um, there was an analysis I read online where. This is Notre Dame Cathedral, you know, a holy place where evil's not allowed to t- step foot. Yep. And the whole idea, visually, is that Frollo's falling into into the hellfire that he had been so terrified of. Yeah. Someone, I'm not sure who, made the observation of, 
did God grant the devil permission to come collect that one soul? <laughs> the gargoyle's face does change. Like, Frollo sees it change into, a like, a demonic hellhound kind of face for a second before it breaks off, and he falls clutching it into the inferno below. So, ooh, he gets it. It's such good comeuppance. I love it. Love it. Goodbye, Frollo. You were a fantastic villain. I, I'm gl- There's a point where Esmeralda drops him to, like, she's trying to hold on, and she drops him, but he's caught by Phoebus, which, eh, that's, that's fairly lucky, but at the same time, uh, in terms of, I can't imagine her being able to pull him up, like, this, this woman, really. So yeah. It's more believable that it, Phoebus would have kept him. I like that Phoebus caught him, and then I think his Phoebus and Quasi moment would be like, bro hug? Bro hug. Bro hug. Bro hug. <laughs> They're bros. Um, and I like, and I, and again, I like how he's like, okay, the two of you are into each other, and he's like, cool, here you go. I'm just gonna be your friend. I'll be your friend. That's all I want. I want it. They're friends. It's good. And then they lead him out of the cathedral, and that little girl comes up and touches his face. And they actually cheer him on and, like, accept him. Were you the guy who who basically threw that that crazy judge off the roof? We like you now. The judge that's been, like, burning our houses down? He was going to treat us to a nice witch burning, and hey, when you swooped down and rescued her, that was way cooler than we were (laughs) expecting. So yeah, of course we like you now. So yeah, um, if I have learned anything from Castlevania, it's you do not burn people at the stake. Only bad things happen. Yeah. If I've learned, <laughs> yeah. also one thing to take away from this that I've also learned from Castlevania and is true of a Hunchback of Notre Dame is, what is a man? A miserable, a miserable little pile of secrets. Secrets. <laughs> but enough talk. How about you? <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> oh, I love that game. I yeah. love this movie. I love, yeah, I really do as well. Yeah. Um, I hate to say this, but the um, the CGI at the end with the crowd scene is super noticeable for a bit. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. Yeah. I can give it a, I can, I can let it slide. Good movie. It was early CG. Like, this was the stage where they were really beginning to try to, to integrate computer graphics more into movies. Like, I think Beauty and the Beast was the very first Disney film to have CG. Actually, it was, uh, actually, um, okay, for a little bit of CG, it was, um, uh, Fox and the Hound, because the fire was CG. Mm-hmm. But then, really? Oh. Yeah, there was a fire portion that was actually CG. It's not that noticeable, though. Um, but then, uh, in terms of full CG, uh, I believe it's, um... The Great Mouse Detective, I think. The, yes. The inside, in the interior of Big Ben. Yes. Oh. Yes. I learned something today. There you go. Mm-hmm. And you, dear listeners, can learn more if you decide to go and listen to our Great Mouse Detective episode, which features our friend who we mentioned in this episode, Alan Chaney. You know, it's kind of like a, kind of like a poem, it rhymes. It comes back <laughs> on itself. Yep. By the way, and, that, and that's fun. That brings this whole thing kind of in a weird... It ties it up in a neat little bow, huh? Nice. Yeah. Um, wow. This movie is... Yeah, this movie holds up. I, I really... Okay, I think maybe... I think I almost appreciate it more now than I did then. It's definitely a movie to watch as an adult and appreciate as an adult. I think I can see why it's not... Um, parents might be uncomfortable seeing with, uh, having their kids see it, but 
honestly, kids are not going to think anything of it. They're just gonna be like, oh, uh. How the gargoyles are there. Yeah, and but it's more than just that. It's like, oh, he's a good guy, and that's a bad guy, and yeah. Um. Look, the complexity was lost on me as a child. Yeah. It was lost on me as a child. I didn't think much of it. It wasn't until I was older that I finally got, uh, was able to get it. But this is, yeah, I feel like this is not a movie for kids. It's a, um, not to say that kids shouldn't watch it. I, it's a, a kid can watch and they'll be fine. But at, as an adult, you can really appreciate, like, the theme behind it and um, the complexity of these characters and, like, um, there, there's just so much more to this film than, mm-hmm. like, what people thought, so. Definitely. Like, there are certain concepts that are just too hard for kids to understand. Mm-hmm. Like, we went to go see Legend of the Guardians, and, um, the concept behind that is Jack Frost is invisible because no one believes in him. And at the end of the movie, everyone believes in him, so he gets a physical form that everyone can see. Mm-hmm. And, like, the children in front of me did not understand this concept. So they kept asking their mom, is Jack Frost dead? And their mom was just going like, yes. Oh, no. <laughs> no one can see him because he's dead. And they're like, okay. But then people can see him, and they're like, wait. Is he not dead? She's like, also, yes. (laughs) It was just a mom who was just, like, trying to explain these really complex concepts to these kids who are, like, six and four. And she's just like, what what will get you to shut up and watch this movie? (laughs) She tried. (laughs) Was... It was a trip to go see that movie in the theater with those kids in front of us. Because mm-hmm. they did not understand any of the concepts this movie was asking them to understand. Right. Like, I feel like there's some animated films that are like that. Um, like, Hunchback is definitely one of those where they'll have, like, deeper themes that children will not fully get. And um, they might question... But then, uh, for the most part, I think... It, so, so then, I guess the ultimate question is, who is this movie for? Is it for? Is it more for the adults? Is it with... Or is it more for our kids? Or is it, a, is it my, like Walt wanted back in the day to have films that any, everyone could enjoy? Um... And is it even... Or is it even that? It's, hey, you know what? That's a complicated question. And you know what? We've been here for a while. Yeah. Just think of it. I think it's. I think it succeeds in being a movie that I think I can enjoy more as an adult than I did as a kid. And I think we all kind of feel that. You know what I mean? But I, even as a kid, I think there's still something about it that appeals. And I think a lot of that is the music, the art, the the characters themselves. Even if you don't understand the deeper uh, meaning behind certain things, it just it holds up super well. And I think it's one of the 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 great. Uh, the great Disney films of the 90s, for sure, of that decade. Honestly, I think what, uh, the one thing that helps, that would help kids relate is Quasimodo. And uh, I think putting the focus on Quasimodo and having him be the main character as someone who's like, oh, I, I, I don't fit in with the world. A lot of kids 
feel like that. Oh, yeah. And I feel that is relatable. So I think that probably was the smartest move to Mm -hmm. do. And I think that's that's the one way that uh, kids can get into it. And there is a lot of silly moments for the most part. Like, I mean, if you took the gargoyles out, there's a lot of funny parts and a lot of funny bits and everything. It's not, like, this isn't like a pure, serious film at all. Like Yeah, of course. Like, Pocahontas was so much more serious than than this film. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, I mean, I think it is for everybody, but in a different way than what's expected. I think kids can still enjoy it be like, oh, look at the festival of fools, look at the colors, and, um, oh, the pretty, uh, the pretty girl, and, oh, I feel and all that but then as an adult you realize oh this is darker and than i realized and <laughs> wow there's the music is incredible and all that. yep yep so that, and that, more yep that's what i think cool but, um yeah, i kind of feel like it's a film that's i think anybody can watch it i feel like you really only appreciate it as an adult mm-hmm. yeah that's kind of what i'm getting i i yeah that said, um, thank you guys. By the way, thank you, thank you both for joining us for this discussion again. Thank you for having us. This is yeah. a lot of fun to talk about. I I'm glad, and, and you know this this is always fun to talk about stuff like this with with you. We had a lot of fun with Peter Pan. We had a lot of fun with Ducktales, but I think this has been even more uh, this has been even more engaging in a in an interesting way. So uh, so yeah. Um, hey, if if anybody wants to find the stuff you do, if they're curious, where can where can people follow you online? Uh, currently we just have our, our, our own, like, Twitter accounts and stuff like that. Okay. So, not really much online at the moment. Fair. Um, so, yeah, you don't have to plug anything you don't want to, so, <laughs> other than Twitter's. Ah, uh, that's fine. We don't have any projects we're working on at the moment. Fair enough. Let us know if you do, though. We'll happily promote yeah. it. Yeah. We'll do. All right. Yep. Okay, until uh, next uh, next time. Our- well, if, if you like what you listen to here, I should say, I should do the shameless thing where if you enjoy what you're listening to here, we, we appreciate feedback. You can leave us some feedback on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this uh, on the Benview Network. Uh, this is just something, like I said, a long time ago, Kayla and I just decided to do this for fun. I, it's surprising how deep we are into this now, and we've had an amazing time doing it. So we're just going to keep going no matter what. But honestly, the feedback is is nice and we're glad to know people also enjoy it so if you like it you know feel free to leave a comment just that's that's all and if not no worries um uh next time uh, our next movie for april is going to be hercules hercules yeah this is hercules, gonna, hercules. This is gonna be interesting. oh boy you know it yeah all right um i think because of this is a normal animesics episode i already know what, what music we're going out on Brace yourselves, everybody. Here comes the high note. come to this happy podcast welcome nothing new is something new 
that great poets imitate and improve, where our small ones steal and spoil. Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Justin. And if it wasn't readily apparent at that, we're huge nerds about remakes. That's why we're doing the Nothing New Podcast. Once a month, we'll sit down and talk about a remake in detail and its original, covering them in whatever order they come out, from Wizard of Oz to It and beyond. They're remaking Stuart Gordon's 1986 sci-fi horror classic from beyond? Oh, no. Not yet. Oh, that's going to be a long time coming. Anyway, if that sounds up your alley, come join Justin and I, and maybe a guest or two, to explore the wonderful world of remakes, film by film. Remakes have been done forever. People talk, but Scarface don't even know that was a remake. Oh, nicely said. Don't thank me. Thank Antoine Fuqua. This podcast is a part of the Benview Network. You can find this and other podcasts like it at BenviewNetwork.com.